Welcome, everyone, to the Our Strange Skies podcast. I am your host, Rob Christofferson, and back for a third time, it's anomalous researcher AP Strange. AP, welcome back, man. What's up, Rob? Thanks for having me back. Man, this series is good. It's going off the rails. Like, I, 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 I wanted to you know, do this, this series justice. And then I, it, it's just like, wow, there's way too much here, but like, we're going to try to perform a miracle here today. We're going to try to pull this off in one. It may not happen, but we're going to try. <laughs> <laughs> if anybody can do it, it might be us, you know? It so. might. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so it was a busy time. It was a busy time for flying saucers. And yes, uh, yep. And, Busy uh, time. A lot of things in general. I, I've always loved the mid '60s as like a cultural uh, and just historic time. Um, yes, I guess not not too different in some ways from what we're living now. But when you look at it purely from cultural and anomalous stuff, it, it's uh, um, it's pretty fascinating. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, and. Uh... The UFO stories, they they go off the rails a little bit here, folks, but uh, there are, you know, core stories that don't often get told together in an episode. They're often like separated out and, and, and picked apart. Uh, and I mean, you could do it that way. What we're going to do is we're going to show you how kind of like all this stuff is, is interconnected, interrelated and such. Um, and with the with the last part with the 65 episode things really got off the rails when you, when you head into august and now all of a sudden the press is on the side of of those who are reporting these cases whereas you know, they didn't really pay them much mind before that um once you get to August and, uh, you know, you get this huge flap, which I don't, I don't think is often cited within like the, the major flaps that people talk about, like, uh, even, uh, when people talk about like 66, they talk about 66, 67, but they don't often talk about 65 or, you know, the, the other kind of well-known flaps like the 54 flap and France and Italy and, uh, the, um, 57 flap in the southwest but um yeah like these are all kind of pivotal moments for ufo research because what you're going to find is it's also kind of marking the end of government research here so on august 29th 1965 headlines across the country read something to the effect of quote ufo prober says there's nothing to indicate any ufos extraterrestrial uh it was in a lot of different papers because it's basically just like an ap story that uh, uh they lifted but like um you know using the phrase ufo prober um you know i think they might need to bring it back 
<laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's so great. Because <laughs> then eventually the UFOs became the probers. And it was yes. the tables were turned, you know. But <laughs> tables were turned. They they read the headlines and uh they they weren't happy with uh Air Force Major Hector Quintanilla, who was the head of Project Blue Book, and he was also a physicist. Uh, he made a statement at the end of August, uh, you know, after this giant flap happens in multiple places across the United States, and he says, you know, that uh, the. There was no, there's no extra proof of extraterrestrials doing this stuff. So, you know, uh, he tries to downplay it, like you know, Project Blue Book's uh, uh, stated goal was. But um, you know, there were calls that summer for a new probe into the government's handling of this UFO mystery, uh, including statements from a young Stanton Friedman who believed there was a mathematical likelihood that we were being visited from aliens by aliens from another planet. So, uh, that was an interesting story to find. We'll, uh, we'll post that online. Yeah. Especially seeing, uh, Stanton Friedman without a beard was a little jarring. Yes. <laughs> that was, was the first time I've ever seen that before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it absolutely was. Um, and, um, you know, I, I love, I love Stanton Friedman, but some, some people just kind of need a beard, you know, <laughs> that's uh that's the lesson in life folks some people they just need a beard it's just (laughs) this is the big lesson here (laughs) well a beard was kind of a weird thing to have in 66 because he had john keel writing about how like you know he showed up in west virginia with a beard and uh (laughs) people couldn't handle it people thought he was the devil because he had a beard you know exactly (laughs) <laughs> exactly um no. but uh you know more high profile cases would start to be you know would be published in the newspapers and you know eventually we would get to that that probe um by the university of colorado at the, uh, later in 66 but uh you know a, a ufo flap is characterized by ex- by an explosion of ufo activity in a certain area for a certain period of time in the 1957 flap, it was primarily the American Southwest. Uh, and, and you know, the August 1965 flap, it was pretty much everywhere, which is kind of, it harkens back a little bit to the 47 flap where people are just seeing UFOs everywhere, but like there's big concentrations in the Pacific Northwest, uh, some areas of California, but like, like it, it literally it was hard to pin this flap down because it's like you had sightings and like, yeah, they're in the Southwest. They're in, um, you know, kind of the, uh, you get some in the Pacific Northwest. You get some in the East. It, it's just kind of everywhere. But like, um, the the states that play a big part in 1966, uh, not only are West Virginia and Ohio, but New Jersey and Pennsylvania play pretty big parts in this year. Um, this is a year where we're in the middle of the Vietnam conflict, and that's pretty newsworthy. You've got Frank Edwards publishing Flying Saucer Serious Business, which is not the most well-researched 
book on the subject. Uh, and in fact, uh, Coral Lorenzen of uh, APRO believed it was a quote catastrophic. <laughs> believed it was catastrophic to researchers who deal with facts. <laughs> oh, but oh, contrary, Rob, because I think. <laughs> I have my copy of Flying Saucer Serious Business right here. And I think uh-huh. it comes with on the inside of inside cover of the uh, dust jacket. It has probably the single best uh, um, disclaimer I've ever found in a book. So oh, does it? This, uh, it, <laughs> it says, warning, near approaches of unidentified flying objects can be harmful to human beings. Do not stand under a UFO that is hovering at low altitude. Do not touch or attempt to touch a UFO that has landed. In either case, the safe thing to do is get away from there quickly and let the military take over. There is a possibility of radiation danger, and there are known ca- cases where persons have been burned by rays emanating from UFOs. Details on these cases are included in this book. Don't take chances with UFOs. <laughs> that is about as serious as you can get, folks. That is the serious business that we're talking that about. about like, that's as serious as business gets. It's, yeah. as, it's serious like a heart attack induced yeah. by rays from a UFO. So Yeah. <laughs> Um, and and I think it squares with some things that you've established as a rule for yourself on this show. I listen, mean, uh, yeah. I, I think you've said before, do not lick a UFO. Don't do um, it. <laughs> don't. That's been like, well established. It's uh, been well established and ignored by the people in large and <laughs> the ones that harassed me into saying, uh, no, I do what I want. I'm like, fine. Lose your tongue. I don't care. It's fine. <laughs> Yeah, well, they Just, can't say you didn't warn them. Exactly. And they can't say much exactly. of anything because they don't have a tongue anymore. But yeah, well, that's. that's I don't want. I don't want DMs. I don't want tweets. Don't even. Uh, you have been warned. But um, <laughs> don't at Rob over that. You know. <laughs> no. Don't do it. Uh, but there's there's a number of interesting kind of, uh, trends in this year that uh, I don't think often get noted. And one that uh, Keel kind of pointed out is that there were a lot of sightings in and around state and national parks, which uh, we will cover some sightings uh, that did take place in those kind of areas. Uh, but there was also sightings around like water reservoirs and water containment areas, uh, including a series of sightings, like three sightings in one night over water containment areas. Uh, and, you know, there were there were other interesting publications that were coming out around this time. And, and one of them is a publication called The Humanoids, which uh, if you have researched this topic, you have delve into like old issues of of the journals flying sauce review april bulletin whatever this like special issue of flying saucer review was huge in many ways like it was printed in book form i i have the i think it's like the um the original edition the way that it came it has a green cover on it and stuff but it this is a time when humanoid reports are starting to be carried more and more in UFO journals because if you if you read up before 65 you don't find them as often in like the April Bulletin or in Flying Saucer Review sparse ones like I know April 
uh, published the Domst and Blobs case when it first came out in the late 50s. But um, humanoid sightings, if they didn't, if these humanoids didn't look human, they didn't often publish them. Especially if you if you read the early like flying saucer reviews, they were they were all about like there. I think like every issue had something about a Domsky in there and and the contactees. But the humanoids is the first kind of really big collective issue that goes through all the weird humanoid sightings in in a bunch of different places, including the United States, which I think like. I, if you were the kind of folks that like back then collected newspaper clippings and stuff like that, you probably knew about them. Or if you read, you know, maybe some gray Barker, uh, especially, you know, they, they knew too much about flying saucers. You would get some of that, but uh, this is the first time really that you're getting this collective publishing of all these humanoid reports, which uh, is important. And it kind of, sets the tone for a lot of the stuff that you see coming up through the later 60s into the 70s uh into your conspiratorially minded stuff in the 80s but um you also start to see the first inklings of cattle mutilations around this time um and uh you know there's an article uh keel started to write about the mothman stuff pretty much like the year after the it, it's really went down, even less than that months uh, in 68, he wrote um, a piece called the enigmatic bird man of West Virginia or something like that for flying sauce review. But uh, uh, in, in one article he wrote quote, farmers in West Virginia sought me out when they heard that there was a quote UFO investigator in the area. And they told me in hushed tones that they had seen round glowing objects land in their fields and steal their cattle. They were afraid to tell anyone they said, because most people would think they had gone around the bend. So not only do you have like cattle mutilations, one thing that Keel talks about in, in the Mothman prophecies is like, um, people like pets, dogs in particular going missing. A lot of that happening. Um, yeah, I think we're gonna cover one of those later. Yeah, story of Bandit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the poor story of Bandit. Um, uh, and you know, after the publicity of the Betty and Barney Hill story in Look Magazine, you know, eyewitnesses would start coming forward claiming missing time experiences. Um. And, you know, to quote Keel's article again, uh, recently I discussed the problem with the Pentagon's current spokesman for Project Blue Book, Colonel George P. Freeman. He told me simply that since no one is complaining direct to the Air Force, no official investigation is being conducted into this aspect. So, like, again, like the comfort level of people coming forward with their stories is starting to change a little bit, but uh, the abduction stuff seems to kind of come forward. The missing time stuff comes forward in slow increments. Um, but you do have to wonder how much of a role men in black played in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Because, because you know, men in black are always telling people not to talk about it. Right. And, um, yeah. And then people talk about the men in black telling them not to talk about it. But 
if they were successful, like say 60% of the time in getting people to not talk about it, then <laughs> right. we would never know. That's a whole lot of MIB stories that we just don't know anything about. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's and a frightening thing to think. Maybe it's way more common. Yeah. <laughs> that, is, that, is, that is a scary, damn scary thought. But uh, yeah, like the, the MIB stuff... And most of it's going to come in the 67 episode because that's kind of when the MIB stuff gets off the rails. It's it's very intricate and it's varied from place to place because you have people with certain like, like what you get most of the time is not your typical like men in black wearing the black suits going in telling people to hush up. You get a little bit of that, but mostly you get like people like in real kind of psyop situations like prank and like pranking and kind of messing with ufo investigators and the witnesses so um yeah that's uh that's a very weird aspect to uh the 19 uh, mid 60s stuff and um in terms of the public attitudes changing uh when it comes to UFOs, because a lot of a lot of people were starting to go outside, they're looking at UFOs, look for UFOs at night. Um, there were two kind of individuals that people that uh, Keel pointed to, and one of them was John G. Fuller and uh, his examination to the sightings in uh, Exeter, New Hampshire, in '65. And uh, it's important to note, and uh, you know, we've 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 talked about this before. Uh, Ray Fowler did a lot of the investigative legwork. I'm sure that um, Fuller talked to a lot of witnesses, but he really piggybacked off the work of Raymond Fowler. So uh, it's right. Fowler's work um, that is because Fuller was more of a journalist, right? Right. Yeah, and uh, so I mean, he was kind of doing a journalistic thing, but as far as the boots on the ground, like ufological investigation, Fowler was there, like right at the beginning of it. Yeah, and, uh, he was associated with like NICAP, I think, and well, pretty much everybody that was around back then. <laughs> exactly, he, he was he was deep in it, you know. But he's he's kind of a, uh, an honorary member of NICAP at this point. But uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, that that reminds me. This little bit here, I I was up in Maine once, and I went to a bookstore, and I found a paperback copy of Inc- Incident at Exeter. And it was kind of cool because the guy that worked there was old enough to remember when the book came out. And um, he's like, yeah, it was like all anybody was talking about. Like people were always going outside and like looking for like people his age, the teenagers in the 60s were like and hearing about the. um, Well, now I'm forgetting his name, Muscolaro. Uh, Uh, Yeah. and, and, um, And like going out at night with flashlights and trying to see if they could find a flying saucer out there. So mm-hmm. it did, it had that kind of impact. I don't know if that was just because it was more local because the guy's up in Maine and that was in New Hampshire, but, right. um, and as a result of that, we have a festival there now every year. So exactly. exactly. It's a UFO festival in Exeter <laughs> every summer. So. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's, uh, and also during this time, while they're conducting their investigation on the uh, incident at Exeter, you have Betty and Barney Hill approaching him and saying, hey, our story's out. I want you. We want to have you write our story so that 
you know, it's, it's told, you know, properly and all that stuff. So you have that going on at the same time. Um, the second individual that Keel points to is kind of changing the attitudes of the public is Heineck himself. And, it's around this time that Heineck is starting to rethink his position on UFOs. And he starts to write uh, articles for the Saturday Evening Post, he publishes in Science. And I can only really imagine how much that pissed off Hector Quintanilla. Uh, you know, <laughs> he's going rogue. <laughs> but. <laughs> But it's like Cadenia yeah, didn't seem to have much of a sense of humor about things. No. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, if you but, have ever seen a picture of the man, the stern look on his face kind of tells oh, you how no yeah, he is. <laughs> I have an issue of Look Magazine from I think '66 or '67, where it has a picture of Cadenia with um, a pile of hubcaps and ch- children's toys and stuff. And he's just looking at it like, look at this mess. Like the expression on his face is like, look at this mess. And, it, and the caption is, is uh, you know, Hector Quintanilla with, with a bunch of things people have passed off as UFOs and photos that were sent to him. You know? yeah. <laughs> they like track down the particular hubcap and the particular pie pan that was used in the photo. And he's got it right. all in a pile in front of him, just looking at it disgustedly. I assume that there was somebody at Project Blue Book that he literally said, go out and get me another pie plan. <laughs> nope, this one isn't right. <laughs> <laughs> and then just all of a sudden, you got a pile of them. Just a, right. a, a huge pile of them. But um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, you know. Who's going to clean up all these pie pans? <laughs> right? Like. We're gonna have to get rid of them at some point. Uh, I'm sure. Like put them in when, 18. Exactly. <laughs> it's where you gotta store all the pie pie pans, and I'm sure that he breathed a sigh of relief when uh, you know he he when the uh, University of Colorado took things over, and he's like, "Yes, I can get rid of all of these pie pans." <laughs> yep. Yep. So. One of the earliest incidents of this flap uh, comes from Violet Bricker, who's driving north on La Harp, uh, in the uh, north of La Harp, Illinois, on January 5th. At around 8.15, uh, Miss Bricker observed a flash of light that she believed was from an airplane. And looking up, the object resembled more of a dirigible than anything and appeared to be on a collision course with her car, of course, the object stopped over a set of telephone lines where it uh, she could see clearly that it was a large egg about the size of a Piper Club Cub plane. And a bright yellowish light stared at her as this object started to turn kind of clockwise. And on the opposite side was a humanoid figure just standing on a platform like outside this thing clad in a one piece like it, it looks like something you would see in space to me like you know you got a dude in a bulky one piece suit and he's like five and a half feet tall just kind of bracing himself on the ship uh and and like it, it just seems like kind of one of those odd things where it's just like rotating and he's like oh god this is so embarrassing they're seeing me right now and uh you know you're just (laughs) waiting for it to turn back around and uh you know this um this figure he had a a ruddy complexion 
and his eyes were pretty dark, but he kind of appeared normal um, regardless. And the figure just kind of stared at Violet for a few moments in this awkward, really awkward moment before it just kind of rotated again, at which point the craft just rose up into the air, accelerating away at high speed. And that, uh, and, and, you know, she attempted to flag down uh, a motorist that was passing by to like kind of get her attention. I really, I get this image in my head of like Marty in the first back to the future movie. And he's trying to like flag down those, um, oh, right, uh, yeah. old, that old couple. And they're like, <laughs> don't stop or we're dead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, that's what we get right here. But, uh, uh, she, um, yeah, she was just kind of get trying to get, uh, uh, corroboration about what she had seen, seeing if anybody else had seen it. But, uh, uh unfortunately she didn't get that. Nobody wanted to stop for her and, uh, they just kind of sp- sped away. But the first real high profile sightings would come in from New Jersey the week of January 11th. And to quote the, uh, Herald news out of Passaic, New Jersey, Quote, many months will pass before the impact of the strange flying objects which dominated the North Jersey skies this week fades into memory. The bright white disks that streaked across three counties and hovered periodically over the Wanake Reservoir will provide an ample amount of conversation for weeks to come, end quote. Um, so uh, the Wanake Reservoir was probably still is kind of the largest water storage basin in the state. Uh, It had its own police force. It might still, I'm not exactly sure, but at around six. Yeah, probably does. Environmental police of some kind. Yeah. mm -hmm. Yeah. At around 6.30 p.m. on the night of January 11th, police uh, officials, hell, even the mayor, Harry Wolf saw this strange light in the sky over Ringwood, West Milford, Patterson, Totoa, Wayne, Butler, and Wanake. The object was described as white and ovular in shape, somewhere in the neighborhood of two feet in diameter. Quote, according to observers, the odd movements of the mysterious visitor was enthralling. Some felt as if it were toying with the police. Citizen uh, and borough officials, by performing dives, almost into the reservoir, at times appearing as if it were looking down upon the spectators from a silent stationary position high in the heavens and by making neat right angles as if it were using the sky as a chalkboard, end quote. Um, Yeah. And I mean, that's not very big either, like two feet in diameter. Yeah, it's just tiny. We're talking mini here. We got a mini UFO. Um, kind of reminds me of that movie, Batteries Not Included. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Uh, like that, that size. That 80s UFO. classic. <laughs> <laughs> um, the UFO just kind of made its rounds that night, uh, appearing over Lakeland Regional High School, a sand pit, uh, and a nearby bridge. And around 2.15 a.m. on Wednesday the 12th, the object was sighted again over Wyckoff, appearing over the Wanake Reservoir five minutes later, where the object descended so low that it almost touched down on the top of Raymond Dam. 
the objects stayed for a couple of hours departing around 4.15 a.m. And like, I think that's what's interesting about this flap is like we're getting long. Like these sightings aren't short. They're long. They're generally hours at a time. Like when you're talking about um, the uh, Hillsdale stuff that we'll get into, like that was like hours that they yeah. observe this and enough time uh, for plenty of people to see it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like yeah. extended times, extended sightings, like these objects wanted to be seen by as many people as possible. And, you know, previous sightings had taken place at the reservoir two weeks earlier, cited by police. Uh, NICAP was quick to investigate and found many of the eyewitnesses credible. And the sightings led to, led people to the reservoir night after night to keep vigil. And like, again, like with the public perception changing on UFOs, more and more people are going out to see if they can catch a glimpse of something. So you have people in, in the TNT area and point pleasant and you have people, you know, like just going outside, seeing if they could see something going to the spots where UFOs have, uh, been spotted and trying to see if uh, they could they could see anything. So, you know, months later, uh, there would be another return set of sightings uh, at the Wanake Reservoir. But uh, in response to public concerns over Blue Book's investigation of the UFO problem, the Air Force convened an ad hoc committee to review the project, which was chaired by Dr. Brian O'Brien, which is just a baller name. Like so much. <laughs> classic classic o- OSS name. That's going to go in like the <laughs> hall of fame for our strange guys. So, <laughs> yeah. Brian O'Brien. <laughs> Brian O'Brien. Uh, we're going to, I think we definitely need to uh, get that, get that wall of fame, that name wall of fame up there because like, um, yeah, that's definitely up there. But the, the panel featured a number of scientists, including Carl Sagan, of all people. And the single-day committee reviewed Blue Book's reports and sided with the project. UFOs pose no threat to the public. And they did recommend that they strengthen their methods to provide a better scientific investigation. So it, what's interesting about uh, you know this panel is that they basically asked blue book to expand a little bit so that they could have better reporting because i'm sure a lot of the reports that they were getting is just like oh not enough information not enough information well, see, that was Venus. A, yeah that, that was kind of on purpose right like yeah. um that's the way heineck kind of characterizes it in his um ufo report book is yes that it, it, it was purposely limited as far as information went so that you could say it was inconclusive, but like Occam's razor would say that it's probably this or that, you know, right? <laughs> leaving out, if you omit the really bizarre details, then you can say it was solved without having to actually really do the work, you know? So Exactly. Exactly. Another interesting so- thing about that is Sagan would kind of flip on that later, right? Like yes. he, he seemed like he was interested in the '60s, and then later he distanced himself from from any kind of interest in UFOs. Yes, so, uh, yeah, you know, serious scientist getting those serious TV contracts does not want to be uh, put in a place where that could be jeopardized. Millions and, and millions of dollars. I mean, stars. Yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> you got that public television funding. You gotta you gotta hold on to that um, as much as you can. Uh, yeah. But, and dude uh, could rock a turtleneck. So oh, I believe <laughs> I in the UFO book club episode that we did for the Close Encounters man. I called him a turtleneck wearing son of a bitch, but I'm not sure. I can't remember. <laughs> it was, you know, sometimes it just comes out of you. You know, you well, because not everybody, that, not everybody can pull off a turtleneck. That's true. That is very Especially true. Especially people with really large heads. They're in trouble. They got to cut it off. <laughs> exactly. I think I think he really pulled off the turtleneck thing because he had such a weird neck. He really had a weird neck. Like I've seen <laughs> that neck and it's it's just like it, it, it's you would think it's unassuming cuz the man wears turtlenecks, but I think it like he looked long. He looked like he had a long neck to be honest with you and like probably he trying do to cover the big that lapel up. thing, you know. No. He couldn't no. pull off like what Nimoy was wearing on the uh, on In Search of. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He needed something a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger. You can't go the half collar. You need the whole thing. This this next one is one of my new favorite stories because, uh, you know, to kind of really pull from as much as I could, I ended up. Uh, grabbing some stuff from the Humcat because the Humcat is just kind of like a great resource for the weirdest stuff that you could ever come across. And um, so the same month, this is in February, the Seattle Times, it would carry a story about a mechanic who met a human-looking alien from another planet who lives in Seattle and is very prominent, uh, according to this article. And uh, first and foremost... Shout out to Jeremy Puma of Liberal Earth for tracking down this article because uh, I couldn't get my hands on it because it was uh, I it was in the Seattle Times archives and uh, you know one of the frustrations of um, doing this stuff is when you get to the website where you think you can get your hands on this and it has no easy information to get in contact with anybody to get it. So, yeah. uh, Jeremy, he, he came through with this one and, um, uh, this, uh, slender gray haired mechanic spoke to, uh, candidly to a guy named Don Duncan, who, uh, we are, uh, according to Garrett, he is, um, He's he's gonna get a hold of him. They, he's talked to somebody. Uh, I think that runs the retirement community that he's in, and they've uh, reached out and said, "Yeah, that they'll get in contact." So we'll see where this goes. But uh, that's awesome. He, yes, um, he is described a, as a skeptic of little green men on Mars and telepathy, this mechanic. But he believes in aliens, quote, because I know a man from outer space and because I got to go aboard that spacecraft, end quote. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, while at work, this mechanic, uh, uh, he, he says in the, in, in the article here, uh, he was tossed the lid like a lid for i don't know if it was a car or an engine or something like the uh, something on a car oil can 
Yeah, yeah. Could, could have been anything, but uh, his coworker shouted, hey, here comes a flying saucer. <laughs> and uh, he laughed, but the customer that was in the building didn't and told him how he had lost his teaching job and his wife was committed to an asylum because, as he claimed it, he had seen a UFO and four men emerge from it. And, you know, when they did, they kind of pantomimed this, this conversation. So... Um, you'd shoot to a few years after this particular conversation takes place. This mechanic remembered the story and shared it with a friend who claimed to know one of the men from the spaceship, uh, when he shared a name and, um, you know, in 1965, a UFO had allegedly crashed in the woods in Oregon. Uh, I Mm -hmm. don't know of any like UFO crash in Oregon. There may be one, there may not be one. I'm not exactly sure, but, um, one of the beings aboard had been killed while another one had just been injured. And there were four other remaining crew that were unharmed. And they spent a week on earth with a group of hunters that had stumbled upon the crash until another craft was sent to earth to retrieve their ship and crew. In that time, they conversed with the leader of the crew and learned of his name, which was designated M Though on his planet, he's known as Neosome, N-E-O-S-O-H-M. So uh, the kicker is that the mechanic claimed to know M and had met him when he was younger. In February of 1966, quote, I received a communication to help a man deliver barrels of oil in a pickup truck. We drove out on a dark and snowy night. The man with me placed a homing device in a field, and pretty soon this round object, about 30 feet in diameter, settled down on it, putting out three metal legs to balance it. The now pilot we're talking. Told, yeah, we <laughs> 30, are. 30 feet, not two feet in diameter. <laughs> no, no. We're, we're talking the whole 3-0 here. And... Um, this this is this is the best part here. The pilot told me in Spanish, and I don't understand it very well. <laughs> that that this craft was used for travel around Earth. It was not for travel between planets. They have one big ship about three hundred feet long for this. The pilot told me further that he was looking over all the space junk set up by the Americans and Russians. And he said the Russians sent a dead man to the moon on the probe that crashed there. At least the man was dead before it crashed. He also said that a few days ago, the Russians tried to put a four-man spacecraft into orbit, and it blew up and killed all four. The spacecraft I was inside of was nothing but a glorified helicopter. (laughs) (laughs) uh it looked like a 1928 model automobile compared with our streamlined new ones it really was quite crude in appearance rather like a disc with a pillbox hat on top and nothing like those slick streamlined phony saucer photos you see Uh, this this guy he he's my favorite. Yeah, you know that McMinnville photo, fake, fake. Yeah, <laughs> the two streams lied. <laughs> That's not what they look like. Yeah, like sorry, sir, it does not look like a helicopter. If it did, maybe maybe we'd be okay. Um, 
<laughs> so it appeared to be operated by electricity. It had nine power packs aboard, which I figured were operated by a galvanic battery system. There were tables for five persons, foot pedals, and hand sticks, one for each hand for maneuvering. So this thing is primitive as hell. This is like Woodrow Derenberger kind of um like primitive nature that the Lanulosians like have um and and like when we get into that you'll like one of the things that John Keel kind of constantly brings up is how like too much like us they seem like their their stuff's like right. really weak but like hey they've got UFOs that can travel uh, somewhere but um uh, there was a round salad bowl shaped thing in the center that appeared to be covered with ceramic. I presumed it was an air intake. The whole outside was a sort of giant fan. So like this really is a helicopter like this. Yeah. This uh, imagine a helicopter. <laughs> yeah, this feels like. This feels like an Antonio V.S. Boa situation because, like, you know, one of the claims is that that was like a CIA, you know, psyop kind of operation that like one person came forward and said that it was. But like this, this, this seems like this is this is definitely like a helicopter psyop kind of thing. But um, I heard what I was sure was a compressor go off and on. The leader said the spacecraft sometimes leaked radiation. <laughs> what the hell don't worry about uh, it don't worry about it yeah no problem <laughs> it does that sometimes <laughs> just, it, 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 don't if you don't even think about it it's not even a problem <laughs> but, it won't affect you for at least 30 40 years you know so yeah yeah like just give it time to like rework your dna don't worry about it uh uh i sat in the control seat and tried to memorize the instruments and gauges the only familiar thing in the cabin were what looked like a surplus American aircraft clock, maybe because they needed some, uh, something to help them with our time, and six American-made rifles in the cabinet. Like, getting more primitive by the second here. Uh, yeah, there was also a fireplace and a bearskin rug. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And we've got the, if, as you can see, there's a shelf with books that I don't actually read, uh, but they look pretty on the wall. Yeah. This is, this is what we're setting up here. Uh, everything was metal and very tightly fitted. I memorized the figures on the main gauge. The ship did not glow. The man said it could not fly particularly fast, that they almost never traveled at night, and that those objects seen at night by saucer believers weren't his ships, if indeed they were anything but imagination. The pilot told me he was from the third solar system, that there is a dead solar system between us. He said it took 18 to 20 of our years to get there. Of their appearance, the mechanic said, that these beings resembled humans only shorter and they had quote unquote wrestlers necks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so like huge necks, I guess That's, I, like I, I'm like big veiny necks. I, that's what I'm assuming. Like, like the opposite of Carl Sagan's deck. 
Yes, like yes. Uh, uh, Carl Sagan, weak neck needs the uh, you know <laughs> needs those turtlenecks, and these guys a little stronger. They get they they work out a little bit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so much Carl Sagan slander on this one. I didn't I didn't really think it was going to happen, but you I know. know I feel bad, kind of. I mean. <laughs> I like Cosmos. It was good. I do. Oh, <laughs> Cosmos is amazing. Don't don't get me wrong. Yeah. Cosmos is fantastic. But yeah. sometimes you got to talk shit about the man. It's just you know, knock him it's down. Just the way it too. goes. Yeah, you know, that um, turtleneck wearing son of a bitch. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it just it flows off the tongue so well. It does. It feels good to say it. I feel like it does. that's a good release for me. Like, I, uh, that's what I needed to get out, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, shortly after his trip aboard the craft, the mechanic received letters from M. These beings had allegedly visited Earth back in 1745. They had gone to Mars and found spore moss. They learned that Venus was a sea of boiling gas and told the mechanic that there were 28 small craft on Earth and that three of them had been lost due to accidents. 300 spacemen live among the population of Earth and operate a secret plant which extracts magnesium from seawater. And... You know, these these aliens, they were much like us. They didn't have any, you know, like secret cures or eternal life. They have not ended war, nor have they solved their food shortage problems or overpopulation problems. They're exactly like us, just slightly shorter and with really muscular necks. Yes. (laughs) Well, then I submit to you, Rob, what the hell good are they? (laughs) Exactly. Come back when you have some answers for us. Exactly, <laughs> Show up and man. mine our magnesium from our oceans and don't offer us anything for it. Come on. Uh, you know, uh, it's a parasitic relationship. We're getting hosed on this one, but uh, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, that's um, we're getting the raw end of the deal for sure. We totally are. Totally are. Um, there's a, there's another interesting account from February that also comes from Washington. It was reported in the APRO Bulletin, uh, quote, at 8.30 p.m. on 13 February 1966, three members of the Stanley Lord family were startled to observe a small object outside the kitchen window. The article in the uh, Metho Valley News gave a pretty fair description of the incident. The object was first noticed by Stan Lord as a bright circular orange disc of light hovering seemingly close to the kitchen window as if it were observing. When someone would look up and watch it, it would disappear. It would then move to another window. So we basically got a peeping Tom UFO here. Uh, On its third appearance, it attracted attention of all three of the Lord's uh, it, it, like the names are going to throw me off on this, like the Lords. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> uh, it attracted the attention of all three of the Lords as it appeared to come to within three feet from the ground and about 50 feet from the house. As the three scrambled to get to the windows, it left again. And when they got to the windows, it had gone toward a neighbor's house, ascending at a 30 degree angle. 
At this time, it seemed to have two lights, a small forward one and a larger one in the rear, which appeared to be about 18 inches apart. The rear light seemed to be glowing much brighter. The object was very maneuverable, changing positions and direct uh, directions swiftly, hovering and accelerating immediately from any angle. The Lord said that they couldn't describe the shape of the object because of the bright lights and theorized that the first object, the small sphere, may have been lowered to the window height from an object at a greater height. Editor's note, the newspaper added their comment that the object had been seen by two boys near Mazama, but gave no other details. This sighting, however, coincides in detail with many others we have logged, which have been tagged, quote, monitor units. So, yeah, we essentially have the peeping Tom of UFOs just kind of like poking its head in, here, <laughs> in there. What's going on in here? Yeah. Oh, they could see me. Damn it. It just seems really cartoony. Like every time they turn around, it goes and hides again. You know, it's just like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like this is a kid. This is basically a kid. Um, yeah. Uh, in March, we kind of get our first events in Point Pleasant. Um, a, a woman given the pseudonym by John Keel um, as Mrs. Kelly witnessed a silver disc hovering above a Point Pleasant school. Floating in midair just outside an open doorway on the side was a man with shoulder-length white hair and pointed features dressed in silver coveralls, looking adamantly down into the playground. She watched this figure for a while until her kids approached the car. And when she greeted her kids and looked back, the being from and the craft had just completely disappeared. And if you've listened to Astonishing Legends and their series on uh, the Mothman, you know this figure as the Disco Wizard. Just uh, I was gonna say, is, was she sure that it wasn't um, wasn't just Edgar Winter? Exactly. Like <laughs> I, if she had said that uh, he he picked up a guitar and just started shredding up there. I totally would have believed her. But uh, according to the Mothman prophecies, Mrs. Kelly had seen other objects too. Uh, in an article that he wrote in Flying Saucer Review in 1971, Keel claimed that an object just like the one she had seen above the school landed in her backyard and a similar figure stepped out of it. Um, you know, there are no further details. Like the article that this, that this port that portions pulled from it's not even about her story i think it's called like a perfect apparition or something like that and i'll post it in the show yeah. notes but it's just like here's a brief mention of this one uh and, and this is you know pre-mothman prophecies but still it's like eh, you know she saw another one just kind of paid her a visit but um um it, it fits with the contacty stuff that's happening around this time um maybe with a little bit longer hair, uh, more old school in, in the contacty kind of uh, descriptions here. But in the Mothman prophecies, we're told that Mrs. Kelly actually lived near a gully and said that this gully would receive nightly visits from lights in the sky. Uh, and her phone was kind of on the fritz too. Like uh, she would uh, pick it up and she would hear like odd beeping sounds, which was, 
becoming pretty it was going to become pretty common in the point pleasant area in later 66 and into yeah, 67. for some reason for for some reason that's the kind of phenomena that really freaks me out with mm-hmm. with uh ufo stuff it's just like phones on the fritz you know um yeah. i mean because back then it was, you just you relied on the landline but just imagine how weird that is of picking it up and just hearing weird noises on the other end of the phone or uh the even weirder phenomena that keel himself dealt with later strange mm-hmm. phone calls or people calling pretending to be somebody else you know um running up his long distance phone bill <laughs> yeah oh yeah making his, his his phone bill go through the roof when he wasn't even yeah. home yeah yep. um just Crazy makes you stuff. wonder who's who's dropping into his apartment when he's not there to make long distance calls. You really got to wonder. <laughs> well, it's one of those things that I'm kind of obsessed with in some ways is just manipulating technology as a way of communication yeah. or just as a way of getting into your head, you know, because yep. it really would. It would really mess with you. I think um, uh, Betty, Betty Andreessen had something like that happen in one of the stories where uh, the the apparently like the aliens called her on the phone right before something happened, and then like kind of like time froze for everybody else. But, yeah, uh, <laughs> it's just like the phone call. The the phone call really bugs me. I don't know what it is about it, but yeah, uh, ali- the- aliens over the phone is just a very strange, strange phenomena. Right, uh, it's kind of like that uh, that Elvira case that we covered. You know, there was yeah, a phone exactly conversation. Like yeah, right. Yep. Um, I still haven't. I, I don't know if listeners want to be updated, but I have not received any emails or social media from any space virus. Um, nope. Much to my disappointment. I don't know about he's, you. Uh, he's upset about that. I'm frankly upset about that. But uh, if there are any space virus out there, please hit us up in the emails. Like, just just get at us. We're we're not that hard to find. Find it. We're um, on Twitter. <laughs> yes, absolutely. You can uh, you can slide into those DMs. That's perfectly fine. Uh, so, uh, you know, now we get to one of the the heavy hitters here, uh, and there were a series of sightings in Michigan that would kind of mark the beginning of the end for Project Blue Book. On the evening, March fourteenth, in Washtenaw County, Sheriff's Department would be flooded with calls of unusual objects in the night sky deputies. And this is a, this is a classic. This is an up there top tier name, Buford Bushrow. That's a, that's a name right there. <laughs> Deputy Buford Bushrow. <laughs> yes. And John Foster, they both cited this kind of red and green colored object at around 4am. And while, uh, while they were investigating a traffic accident, and what's interesting about that is the Portage County uh, incident starts when they're kind of investigating a car accident slash abandoned car. So uh, it's interesting. We have triggering incidents here. And mm-hmm. sh- shortly after this similar object joined this other one and they flew in formation together and Sighting reports started to just flood in from Monroe, Livingston, Ypsilanti, and Dexter, Michigan, as well as uh, from Sylvania, Ohio. And, and personnel at Selfridge Air Force Base 
reported seeing objects in the sky as well, but they were unable to pick them up on radar. The objects that Bushro and Foster had seen were joined by another two objects at around 5.30 a.m., and they flew off to the northwest. The following night, Patty Kunish and Sandra Bauer, they were leaving the Emmanuel Church after a Sunday school teacher's meeting when they saw a star-like object, bright, traveling north very fast. Soon they gathered more teachers and they all witnessed this, uh, quote, two brightly lit object traveling through the skies. And sightings would continue throughout that week. In the Lansing State Journal, the story, quote, it's an Irish UFO purported that residents of Iona saw Venus on uh, low on the horizon. Um, yeah, it, it, was, uh, it was an interesting headline, but uh, the sightings would all... <laughs> culminate on March 20th um, at 7.30 p.m. Frank Mannard, a grizzled 47-year-old father of 10 who lived just outside of Dexter, Michigan, saw a series of red, white, and blue lights. The all-American UFO here uh, approach some nearby trees and descend into swampland. Uh, accompanied by his son, Ronnie, the pair walked into the swamp and from 500 yards away, the trees bathed in a multicolored light show. Frank and Ronald saw a pyramid-shaped object the approximate length of a car. From underneath it, a hazy mist spilled out and up, and they could make out this uh, a light on the interior that was coming through this alleged porthole. And the thing about this object is... Uh, Frank Manners seems to describe it a couple different ways, a couple different times, but like it, it's not totally out of the realm of inconsistency here. So well, he was grizzled, yes, and a father of ten, so you could forgive him for being a little inconsistent. <laughs> yeah, just just a little bit. Um, uh, Ronnie uh, at one point yelled out, "Look at that horrible thing!" Which prompted the object's lights to go out, which I would feel insulted too. Like I show up hanging out in your swamp, and you're gonna you're gonna call me a horrible thing. Fine, just uh, turn out the lights. Works for me. Yep. You're yeah. not so good looking yourself, Roddy. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. From the house, Mrs. Manor observed the object rise above the trees and descend back down to the ground, hitting the treetops on the way. And quickly, Frank and Ronnie rejoined the rest of the family back at the house where everyone heard this kind of high-pitched screeching sound over their roof. Deputy Bushrow responded to a call from Miss Manor. Upon leaving their residence, he spotted lights in the sky heading south. Bushrow pursued the object, uh, which appeared to be round and gave off a bluish green, red, and white light. The deputy gave up after about five miles, unable to catch up as the object sped away in one big, huge burst of speed. Now, Dexter Police Chief Robert Taylor and Patrolman N.G. Lee saw the lights that the manners did from a nearby hill. And they these lights would just kind of pulsate this red color. 
And the two officers approach the growing redness with a pair of flashlights. And from close range, the lights went out, though the object produced uh, kind of like an ambulance siren type of sound. And the manners actually heard that sound, too, when they were out in the in the swamp land. But um, Robert Taylor's son, whose name is also Robert saw an object in the sky that also gave off a red light at about 10 10 30 p.m shortly before bushrow left the uh, manor household the next night ufo activity would be reported in a swampy hollow near the school dormitory of hillsdale college 87 co-eds and a civil defense director william van horn watched the object for nearly three hours and whatever it was, it hovered above the ground, casting this orange, red, and white light. Van Horn told the press, quote, It was definitely some kind of vehicle. From all appearances, it did not seem to be sitting on the ground as it moved back and forth across the ground. Through the glasses, it was either round or oblong. I think that's what makes the lights on these things change color, is that they are rotating in a circular motion, end quote. The girls on campus called Van Horn after watching the lighted object rise and fall uh, and sink back down. Its movements were too fast to be any kind of aircraft that they would have known at the time. And police were called. But uh, the weird thing was, is like they claimed that they couldn't see anything from the road. So they're like, no, peace out. We're done. Um, But (laughs) we're not coming up there. No, let him deal with it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you've got a civil defense director. We're fine. You're fine. Uh, but <laughs> the, That's good. The, I was uh, going to pub- ask what he was doing hanging out with 89 co-eds, but I guess they called right. him, so that makes sense. But <laughs> right. <laughs> the, the publicity of these cases would send people out into the icy rain in the hopes of catching glimpses of UFOs and it like it was doing all across the country. And the air force was quick to send Heineck out though with very few resources on hand. He didn't have a lot of time to spend with witnesses taking statements and he was forced to give a rushed press conference. And he was also there conducting an investigation with a broken jaw. So, you know, out here, uh, I don't, I, I think I feel like I used I, to know, but I don't remember. Uh, I think it was uh, he had gone on like a camping trip or something with his family, uh, and he had uh, broken it while I think messing with some radio equipment that they had out there or something like that. I can't remember. I know it's in um, it's it's in Mark O'Connell's The Close Encounters. Man, it's been a while since I read it, but uh, I'm pretty sure right. it happened while he was on vacation. Um, okay yeah and it was something like accidental like he slipped and fell on his face or something i don't know but (laughs) yeah like you know it it wasn't that hector Hector quintanilla just like cold cocked him or anything like that but uh i'm sure (laughs) he wanted to immediately think though yeah (laughs) or somebody did or somebody did you know like exactly Uh, usually means one thing i don't know but exactly um at the press conference, he gave his opinion that what was seen in Dexter and at Hillsdale College was the spontaneous combustion of methane released in the swamp, otherwise known as swamp gas. And as we all know, 
this explanation did not sit well with anyone. Um, and he was kind of uh, quick to go to the press shortly after this and address it saying, now I'm not making a blanket statement about UFOs in general. Uh, you know, this is just what I came to. And if you read the um, report that they have on uh, QFOS's website, you, you, you read through the whole thing. He's talking about how he didn't have much help. There was one guy from Selfridge Air Force Base that was giving him a hand. He needed like two other people really with him to take with the statements. And I think he only ever talked to like less than 10 people because he never just had the time to do it because everything was so rushed. But following this, there was a press conference, uh, minority, uh, you know, following the press conference, minority leader, Gerald Ford demanded a congressional investigation on UFOs with the support of many congressional members. And this would lead to an open hearing on April 5th, chaired by uh, L. Mendel Rivers. Three members of the Project Blue, uh, of Project Blue Book were present, including Secretary Harold Brown, Hector Quintanilla, and Hynek. And against Quintanilla's wishes, Hynek basically called for a civilian panel of scientists to examine the program. He was all in at this point. He's just like, I, I can't win with these folks, so let's just do that. But... Um, I mean, that's yeah, kind of like a big turning point for Heineck too. Is mm-hmm. just uh, is kind of where he got reached his limit with with the restrictions and uh, um, closed mindedness of 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 Blue Book's leadership there, and uh, started being more sympathetic towards towards other options, at least more publicly about it. So, and. Following Heineck's press conference in, in Michigan, he um, he dressed the public again on April 1st, and uh, we're going to include a little bit of audio for that uh, right now. I am not. I wanted, Here's one part I do want to read. I want it clearly understood that I'm not making a blanket statement to cover the entire UFO phenomenon over the past 20 years in this and other countries. I'm discussing only the Dexter and Hillsdale sightings and then only that material which forms a consistent picture. The government did approve funding for an independent panel, and it was determined that the University of Colorado would head it up after a bunch of universities turned it down. Ethan uh, Hynek, I think, tried to get Northwest Western on board, and uh, they would not go for it. So uh, this. is leads to the infamous Condon committee taking over the study of UFOs and uh, uh, coming to their determination years before their project was up, uh, mind you, but uh, you know, that, that, that's uh, enough. They'd had (laughs) enough. Yes. So the strangeness wore on though. And one of the strangest accounts came out of Oklahoma, of all places. On March 23rd, veteran pilot and electronics instructor Eddie Laxon was making the trip from his home in Temple, Oklahoma, to Shepard Air Force Base in Texas. He'd been an electronics instructor since 1951, and he had also logged over 8,000 hours of flight time throughout his life. As he turned on to U.S. Highway 70 in the direction of uh, Ramblet, 
past a farmhouse on his left and was forced to stop the car. Blocking the entire road was a 75-foot-long craft of some kind. It resembled the body of a plane but had no wings, propellers, external engines, or anything that a conventional aircraft did. He described it saying it looked like a conventional C-124 aircraft with no wing, without wings or motors. And that's just the way it is, though. I mean, like, yeah. you're just trying to get to the Air Force Base, and, of course, there's a giant wingless craft sitting in yeah. there blocking the road, making you late. It, I swear to God, it happens every time. <laughs> every time old time. <laughs> Anytime I'm late for work, that's why. It's just I couldn't help it. There was there was a cigar shaped craft about seventy five feet long in the middle of the road, and I couldn't get around it. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. It, it like it hung out there for like five minutes, put me behind. I'm upset about it. You're upset about it, but uh, it is what it is, and you got to roll with the punches, roll with the changes. You know that's uh, that's that's how it is. And uh, they he. With this, uh, the the investigators and like the people that were interested in the case, they kind of called this thing a fish um, because of uh, there was kind of this like swooping kind of like I don't know if it was like an antenna or something on top of it. But um, in terms of being the perfect eyewitness, Eddie Laxon was like the perfect eyewitness. He's kind of like the um, Lonnie Zamora for this incident and. He had uh, taught a class on aircraft identification at the University of Arkansas in 1942. So to say he was familiar with all sorts of aircraft is kind of an understatement. So Eddie got out of the car and he started to run up to this object. And standing next to it was an ordinary looking man, approximately 30 years old, dressed in green Air Force style fatigues. Uh, a baseball cap and he was even able to see like chevrons on his sleeve so hmm. on the hull of the craft eddie noticed that there was uh that the vehicle had identifying marks on it and the insignia read either tl4138 or tl4738 he quickly jotted down the insignia a strange man re-entered the ship, and the object lifted 50 feet into the air and accelerated away at roughly 720 miles per hour, making a sound similar to a high-pitched electric drill and creating a magnetic effect that made the hair on Eddie's arms stand on end. Uh, another intriguing close encounter would occur in the evening. Quote, police received a report from 23-year-old John King of Bangor, Maine, who claimed he had seen an orange-colored low-flying object with a blue light on one end and a white one on the other in a field near the Bangor State Hospital? He said he uh, uh, he said a few shot he, he took a few shots at it. His story: He was driving on Mount Hope Avenue when he noticed lights in the field near the Bangor State Hospital. He got out to look, and the object started coming toward him. He went back to his car, loaded a 22 caliber automatic pistol, and returned to the field and fired four shots at the thing. King claimed he could hear the tips of the elderberry bushes scraping the underside of the object, which he estimated as two car lengths wide as it passed above him. 
Captain yeah, 22 F. ought to take care of that, you know? Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. Um, yeah. Captain F. Carr McKinnis, to whom King reported, said that King must have seen something as he was visibly upset. So we've got people out here shooting things. Uh, we've got We've got a lot of weird stuff going on and and you got the one guy running up to the UFO and the other guy shooting at it. And neither of those things I would recommend. I exactly. <laughs> exactly. Because, you know, we've got some pretty bad scenarios of what can happen. Uh, you know, 67, we're going to get Stefan Mikulak. He gets farted on by a UFO and it does not end well for him. Uh, you so, do not want to get farted on by a UFO. I just... And it bears repeating, flying saucers are indeed serious business. So just <laughs> mind your P's and Q's when it comes to the UFOs. Exactly. Uh, what you read at the beginning of this is is an omen. Uh, it is. It, 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 it's how it gets bad, folks. It breaks bad. These UFOs, they break bad sometimes. Um, Ohio would start to see an increase in UFO activity toward the end of March and into April. And on March 30th, an unnamed man sitting in a car near the Mansfield OSU campus in Mansfield, Ohio, between 10 p.m. and midnight, claimed to see a round object hovering above one of the buildings on campus. Quote, the informant said a door in the object opened and that he was able to see a child-sized figure, very thin. He said the object moved toward his car and then rose rapidly and disappeared. The man explained he didn't want to be identified because the lady in the car with him at the time was not his wife. <laughs> reliable witness. Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally reliable witness. Um, a, we a week later, on April 7th, Deputy Sheriff Robert Ray and Special Deputy Richard Hoffman saw an object in the skies over Mansfield. It began with a phone call from a citizen who saw a strange white light at 8.27 p.m. east of Berger Avenue. Upon responding to the call, four sightings were made by the officers while they were maneuvering the streets to get a better view. The UFO activity in Ohio would set the stage for a remarkable chase across state lines and would leave one police officer ostracized from his job for the rest of his life. At midnight on April 17th, Dale Spar reported for, work, for duty at the sheriff's office in Ravenna, Ohio. Spar met up with auxiliary police officer Wilbur Neff, nicknamed Barney, and the two responded to an accident. A car had uh, actually crashed into a pole. Later, they shared a laugh with the dispatcher who chided the two officers that a woman had called in to report a UFO the size of a house flying around. They laughed and headed in the direction of the nearby hospital to file a report. They didn't really think much of it. Um, this kind of reminds a little bit of the um, incident at Exeter because one of the um, officers before he got to uh, Muscarello he reported that he had allegedly come across a car that was pulled over on the side of the road, a woman inside saying that she had been chased by a UFO. So uh, we've got right. a similar thing. Uh, here's the lesson, folks. If anybody tells you that they have been chased by a UFO, believe them. Just believe them. Uh, yeah, and, believe and, them and, the first time. 
Yes. They're going to prove you wrong because they're going to, the UFO is going to find you. That's just the way it works every time. Uh, that's the way it works in this story. That's the way it's, it works in every story. But, um, you know, they, they, uh, they headed, they were heading in the direction to file this report at the hospital. But before they did, they stopped near a parked 59 Ford that was just kind of really rusty. And the two approached the car. And when, uh, and when Spar reached the front, he looked over his shoulder and through the trees, there was this visible light. And immediately he assumed that it was a, you know, the flying saucers that uh, they had been joking about. It was a perfect oval shape that lifted above the trees and passed over the road. Its bright light made it hard to look at for any period of time. It lit up everything around it, including the ground. Spar's eyes watered at the sight of it. When it moved, it would tip forward just slightly. And the two made, you know, for their cruiser. And when Spar reached for the handle and gripped it, he had the strange urge that the car would disappear. This is um, uh, a, a little factoid pulled out of the um, the UFO encyclopedia yeah. by uh, Jer- by Jerome Clark. In it, he says uh, he had this weird feeling like the car would disappear the moment he touched it. Don't know why. But, um, yeah, he, um, I guess it's just kind of like, and you feel like this is also weird. Maybe it's a dream, you know? Right. Like, is this a dream? If I go to touch the car, is it just going to disappear on me? You know? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Kind of eerie, really. That's a weird detail. Uh, like all of this is very eerie. Um, but uh, once inside, he radioed to dispatch who told him to wait for another car to arrive. And while they sat there, they both claimed to hear, quote, a whisper behind a humming noise, which seemed to come from the object, which is another creepy thing that uh, is freaking me out a little bit. But um, suddenly the object shot up a few hundred feet and then moved away from the cruiser to the opposite side of the road. And the sound just grew louder and the light grew brighter and it moved ahead 150 feet and spar followed it with a better look at the object. They were able to discern it was about 18 to 24 feet thick and about 35 to 45 feet in diameter with uh, a rounded bottom on it. The top was still not visible due to the brightness and the angle the object then pulled away doing 80 miles per hour and Spar and Neff pursued. Uh, and they were encouraged to shoot at it, but uh, decided not to. Um, the dispatcher believed that it could be a weather balloon. So, hey, just shoot it down. Um, the pursuit continued over like, I want to say almost a dozen counties, something like that, wow. or not maybe maybe not a dozen counties, but a dozen like maybe towns or something like that. Because this is an eighty-six mile chase that is ensued into Pennsylvania before it's broken off like early in the morning. And you know, I don't want to get into the nitpicky details; otherwise, this episode will be way more longer than it needs to be. But um, the main thing here is that this incident ended up ruining. Dale Spar's life to the point where he lost his job. His wife divorced him, uh, and he ended up nicknaming the UFO Floyd yeah. for whatever reason. You, you know, like a, a dude broken up. Hey, 
uh, I'm going to give this thing a name. So uh, he lost his job, uh, but he did receive like report, uh, like support in the uh, from uh, readers of uh, one local paper. There's like um, a story that they published a story about him like a few months later after uh, he had lost his job, you know, saying, you know, everything that he'd gone through but he started to receive like this outcry of support but uh yeah dale spar i don't think was the same man um that's a fascinating article partly just because of how it's written you know it's Mm -hmm. a really cool one if you can find it where it's like a saucer named floyd like (laughs) man's life ruined by a saucer named floyd (laughs) yeah 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 uh which and is also can, kind of funny because I think Pink Floyd re- released their first album in uh, in 1966, Piper at the Gates of Dawn. Yes, yeah, absolutely, hey. yeah, absolutely hey. correct. Um, <laughs> making connections here, we're making connections. Oh, yeah. uh, uh, throughout much of uh, late April, there was a trend that John Keel. And the staff of APRO noted uh, that we mentioned before, like these UFOs appearing over large uh, water storage areas. And we've already talked about the Wanake Reservoir sighting of January 11th. But in April, a water tower in New York would receive a visit from a strange UFO. Quote, an unidentified by request police officer at Syracuse, New York, reported that on the night of the 25th of April, he observed a circular car-sized object hovering near the Thornton Park water tower. The same officer had seen an object come out of the south earlier. It was described as cloud-like, and it hovered about 200 to 300 yards near the field house, then climbed into the sky and disappeared. The second, seen about five minutes later, also came from the south and dropped at a 45-degree angle. It was described as a white, bluish-green object that trailed uh, white sparks. The size was comparable to an auto. It was circular and had a dome top within which lights were observed. It stopped and hovered about three feet above the road leading to the water tower. After five to ten seconds, it rose and vanished into the south. The officer reported that the objects were also seen by two others, one of uh, one of a group of boys who were walking near the park, Thornton Park, told a reporter for the Syracuse Herald American that he and his friends saw the same thing. On October tenth and eleventh, so we're we're, we're going to push forward here a little bit. Uh, there were three different parts of the country that would receive UFO reports over water storage facilities. This was reported in the April Bulletin two months later. Quote, three much publicized sightings of unconventional aerial objects over water storage areas were recorded by the press since the issuance of our last bulletin. Coincidentally, they all took place on the same date. At 8 p.m., CST Canabec. South Dakota rancher Roger Houston saw a bluish colored light, which appeared to be hanging over the Crow Creek Indian reservation community of Fort Thompson. The sighting was corroborated by motor patrolman, Patrick Gribben, Sheriff Lee Roberts and game warden Floyd Gardner of Presho, all of whom drove into the country to watch the lights 
The objects slowly change position from overhead to an easterly position at about 10 p.m. Fort Thompson police said it had brightened and was joined by another object, which had had the appearance of changing from red to green to yellow, while the original light changed from white to bluish green to red. Gribben said the first object appeared at least three times as large as the brightest star in the sky and was viewed by him and companions from a point 26 miles west of Fort Thompson. No aircraft were reported in the area at that time. Reports came in to Fort Thompson police from people within a 100-mile radius of the reservation, all of whom stated the objects were over the town. Significant is the fact that authorities and the press made no mention of the location of Fort Thompson, which is on the shore of the Fort Randall Reservoir, which is one of two huge freshwater reservoirs which bisect South Dakota at about mid-portion. The other reservoir is the Ohahi Reservoir, which was beginning in North Dakota and extends to about the middle of South Dakota, where it joins Fort Randall. The two reservoirs are the larger part of a reservoir system, which collects the 20-odd inches per year of rainfall of South Dakota and portions it out to neighboring states, including Iowa, which is in the heartland of America's food-producing area, the Middle West. Hmm. On the Yeah, yeah, it's... Uh, what is it with these UFOs and water? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. They're digging the water, though. Well, we know that they got the magnesium from the ocean water, but mm-hmm. I don't know. understand what they want with their reservoirs. Oh, well. Exactly. On the same night that the strange lights were seen over Fort Randall, Wanake uh, Reservoir in New Jersey was also the site of a weird... Uh, of weird sky objects antics patrolman William Pastro told the press that he saw a bright light over the reservoir while parked in a patrol car and turned on the revolving red light whereupon the object's lights immediately went out. Also reporting their observations were Sergeant Benjamin Thompson and patrolman Edward Wester of the reservoir police who said they saw a bright object which appeared at 11 p.m., passed over the reservoir from Pompton Lakes to the south and went uh, down beyond the dam. Most reports of the strange objects at Wanake described them as saucer-shaped, the size of an automobile and glowing with a brilliant white light. Sergeant Ben Thompson of the reservoir police said the object went straight over his head, stopped in midair, and backed up. It then started zigzagging from left to right, he told reporters. Thompson said he got out of his car and watched the object for five minutes until the brilliance of the light nearly blinded him. Because of its brilliance, he couldn't discern any features of the object. He estimated its altitude at as 150 feet, said it stirred up brush and water as it hovered and maneuvered overhead. Also on the 10th, Dr. William A. Kreutzer professor of botany and plant pathology at Colorado State University, Dr. Salisbury, one of APRO's staff, held a similar position there this fall when he accepted the position of chief of the botany division at Utah State U at Logan, observed an unidentified object over Horsetooth Reservoir near Fort Collins. At about 15 minutes after sunset, 
He and several neighbors saw the strange light along the horizon above the reservoir, and it was the second such sighting made by Professor Kreutzer within two weeks. The first bright object disappeared to be replaced by two lights which glowed with varying intensity as though connected to a rheostat. Professor Kreutzer told the press after this manifestation, the first object reappeared slightly above the original position. Quote, Kreutzer said he would not say that what he saw was swamp gas and was not <laughs> satisfied with prior explanations for aerial phenomenon which, uh, about which he had read. They ought to get some decent instruments so that they can get some decent data, he told the press. Amen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah. But coincidence? Coincidence all on the same night in three different parts of the country? That's pretty crazy. Right. It is pretty crazy. But uh, three different places, same night, water reservoirs. So, yeah. Maybe they're after the fish. Maybe they are after the fish. I don't know. Maybe they're into fishing. But um, uh, Missouri also played host to a couple of strange incidents in April as well. Uh, Sadie Hager was driving home one April night over the gravel road. She noticed uh, ahead of her, but off to the left, a red light or two low in the air. Her first thought was that it was a low plane and she would keep an eye on it. It got closer, and she thought it was getting closer to her, but soon realized that she was getting closer to it, which is the most crazy sentence I've ever read in, like, any report. But uh, suddenly, <laughs> suddenly she saw that it was just down the road in front of her, between her and her home, very low, hovering over the road. A couple of weeks ago, when Sadie told me something of her sighting, I had asked how far above the road the UFO was, and she said it was about as high as a telephone pole. Yesterday, date of interview, though she said, no, it wasn't even that high. She knew as she drove under it that she that uh, had she been standing on top of her car, she could have reached up and touched it. She's about six feet tall with her shoes on, and she declares that it was no wider than the road. She realized at once that it was no airplane, and immediately she reached over and snapped the lock on the car door opposite her. This was weird, and she was frightened. She knew that she would either have to, uh, either have to stop the car, attempt to turn around on the in the country road, or run uh, on under it. Uh, since she was uh, about to stop the car, she stepped on the gas and went ahead. As she went under it, her headlights uh, lit up its belly so that she could see it was metal, shiny, and was colored a slate gray, the color that would make you think it belonged to the Navy if it belonged to our government at all. Interesting. Okay. Uh, sure, yeah. why not? Uh, <laughs> great determination. <laughs> I'll buy that for a dollar. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> It's uh, curved up at both ends, saucer-like or football-like, and the red lights, one at either end, glowed an orange-red, but did not send any rays downward. There was absolutely no noise. The red lights at the ends of the ship seemed to be up above it some, somewhat, as though extended on metal pipes or arms or something. Now she really tore out and said 
uh, she bet she made that curve at about 100 miles per hour. I don't know if she meant her driveway or some previous curve. I did not ask her to come show me the exact spots where each thing had happened. <laughs> yeah, so far that's the most unbelievable part of the story. It, exactly. You say there was a curve in the road? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> 100 miles per hour and it seems like you're pushing it a little bit. Like into uh, your driveway? I mean, I uh, now I'm starting any, to doubt the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> doubt has been cast. Uh, anyway, she never saw it again after she drove under it and looked up, but she felt as though it were following her immediately, uh, following immediately above her. She said she was blaring her horn for her husband as she drove into the driveway. He came out. They looked all around and nothing was to be seen. After this, she phoned the sheriff, and he and his deputy came out to search if anything had crashed, end quote. On April 1st, in Liberty, Missouri, Darlene Underwood and her mother saw two luminous objects land on a nearby hill and observed them through binoculars. They were egg-shaped and about the size of a large car. Presently, they saw the shadows of one or two human-like beings and heard the beings shouting at one another very loudly in a foreign language. After this, they heard the sound of a pig squealing. A Yikes. point of green... Yeah, like, I... that That's just... That, uh, I don't... I don't even know. I don't even know. Um, a, a point of green light issued from one of the objects. Then they took off and flew rapidly away. Um... It's just weirdness, weirdness, weirdness. And um, we're going to we're going to pivot again here. We're going to go back to Maine here briefly because um, we got a couple of really weird reports here uh, in Elliot. Three cars of people drove into a gravel pit where they noticed a strange looking huge black dog. A young man, Jim, got out of got out and encountered a black quote unquote blob, five feet tall, triangular, with a ground head on top of it, with a slit like mouth that emitted fumes and a sickening stench. What's interesting here, and with this triangular pattern, is that it kind of reminds me of this case from South Africa in 1972, in which these witnesses were seeing this 11 foot tall, like kind of triangular thing that had a head on it and would emit fumes and fire. Uh, this is kind of like that a little bit. Um, yeah, I mean, black blob, that's pretty crazy. Uh, yeah. But the triangular head, I don't know, it kind of makes me think of. Uh, Wait, so it's triangular, but with a rounded top to it? Yeah, yeah. It just feels like um, an insect-like to me, like an insect Yeah, head. a little bit. Like a, a mantis bit. head, you know, sort of. But uh, uh, that, that's crazy. That's a crazy monster story. Black blob <laughs> with, <laughs> with a triangle head. Yeah, I, I think what's interesting here um, is that this case was investigated by Benny Hill. So. Well, I don't know. She kind of investigated a bunch, though, didn't she? She did. Uh, I feel yeah, like I feel like did. a lot of people just kind of came forward to her with weird stories, which is great for me because they're all fairly local to me, for right. the most part. <laughs> just people in New England would seek her out and just be like, 
Uh, so this weird thing happened to me. Um, I was reading, I was reading up on Puckwudgies once, and there was like a, a little people in the Connecticut River reported to Betty Hill. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was just like, oh, she just got all kinds of weird stories thrown her way. Yeah, yeah, and like, I mean, Kenneth Arnold was kind of your first UFO investigator after his sighting. Uh, you know, going out and investigating Maury Island and stuff. So. Yeah, it's it's not surprising um, that that would happen. But uh, um, on the on April twenty third at two fifteen p.m. in the afternoon, Kim Baker, a six year old girl, saw a lens shaped shiny metallic object over Bingham, eighteen feet wide, descend and land a few yards away from her in a field. It had red lights on each side and flashing green light on top, and a rectangular window through which she saw a man's face. He winked and smiled at her and said something she could not hear. He had a bubble on his head, which he took off before speaking. Then he stood up, and she could see that he was wearing shiny white clothing with numerous black buttons on his chest. Then the object took off again at the site uh at the site, her parents found a circular area of broken down pussy willows about 15 feet in diameter. So, yeah, Maine's, Maine's got some weird stuff going on here. You know, a few weird sightings. And nearly a month after Le- Eddie Laxon's sighting, near Thackerville, Oklahoma, Dr. Eula Page, a psychologist, was driving homeward at around 2 a.m. from Texas with her two children and a friend when she noticed a luminous object as big as the moon darting back and forth across the highway. Just after she had crossed the Red River Bridge, she came directly underneath it and stopped. It descended and hovered very close to the car, a luminous horizontal lens-shaped body more than twice the length of her station wagon was surrounded by a spherical framework that was revolving around it. On one side of the disc was a long window through which four human occupants were to be seen. One stood regarding her, while the others busied themselves with instruments and controls on the rear wall on which multicolored lights were flashing. They wore tight-fitting silver-gray uniforms and had slender, slanting eyes. Her daughter said that one was a woman. Standing outside the car, Dr. Page watched the UFO for 20 minutes. A force field around the craft made it difficult for her to breathe, and a hot wind blew from the sphere that smelt electrical. Finally, another car approached, and the UFO quickly moved toward the river. <clears throat> yeah no thank you oh, these ufo occupants really like the silver jumpsuits i gotta say it's always silver they, always always silver i think they were a fan was of like the style at the time in 1966 I mean, they, <laughs> right they must have been fans of like you know like the mercury and the gemini astronauts because they kind of just wore that silver kind of uh right. outfit uh before you get into the like the white uniforms that they had for like the Apollo missions and stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, on one mid May evening in Newport, Oregon, 16 year old Kathy Reeves and a girlfriend came upon a dome shaped object 
quote, as high as a room. I don't know what that means, but um, <laughs> sure, as high as a room. Um, uh, with a ruddy glow and smoke boiling around it, looking as if on fire. After this, she saw three little stumps that walked across the pasture. They were of different colors, orange, light blue, white, yellow, and watermelon colored. By mid-October, by mid-October, a total of five persons in the vicinity had reported seeing moving stump-like creatures at two locations east of Toledo, Oregon. Yeah, so that's, that's crazy weird. to me because it's like they're talking about like tree stumps, I assume. Yes. yes. Just walking tree stumps. Yes. So, okay. I'll accept it. I'll allow it. <laughs> uh, we're going to check with our judges and yep, we're, uh, it's, we're allowing it. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the variation in color is, is pretty great. That's a good detail. Yeah. I like that. Yep. Watermelon colored. Like watermelon colored. Watermelon or I'm assuming otherwise they I, just would have said green. Right. But, uh, I mean, you know, why say green when you can say watermelon colored? <laughs> um, well, now I'm just confused. I don't, I, I might have to change my judgment on stump like creatures, but well, right. whatever. Uh, I'll, I'll come back to it. I'll meditate on that one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you meditate on that one. Um, in the summer, in the summer of 66, a series of hairy humanoids would be reported. And the first was reported May 21st in Morristown, New Jersey. In an article by John Keel, quote, five very frightened young people ran into the police station in Morristown, New Jersey, and reported an encounter with a giant faceless being about six foot five uh, in the historical park nearby. It had huge shoulders, was covered in hair, and walked upright in a clumsy, stiff-legged fashion. The thing had also been seen a year earlier in the same area, end quote. Gotta say, and faceless, the, no thank you. And, and that's the thing, is like, um, we're alluding kind of to Bigfoot-like creatures, but they're, they're, some, they're a little off. They're not... You, the descriptions you're not you're gonna get are not totally the what you expect in a in the, like a bigfoot like creature, but this is definitely uh, uh, large hairy humanoids that that mm -hmm. uh, are, are conspicuously missing some of the bigfoot bigfoot yes. uh, characteristics that we come to expect uh, in our squatchy uh, tails. Yeah, exactly. But, Right. Exactly. So in the last days of July, a series of sightings would be made over Erie, Pennsylvania, uh, in particular, an area around Presque Isle. Uh, and Presque Isle is a state park and recreation area located on a hook-shaped peninsula in, on Lake Erie. Uh, and this is a well-patrolled area that is, you know, well-tended, even has a Coast Guard station on one end of it. It's not a place that, you know, doesn't get a lot of attention uh definitely mm -hmm. does so on the evening of july 31st four young adults and two children drove to the picnic area of beach number six at 8 p.m to have a picnic they drove up and they actually drove too far into the sand which meant that their vehicle was stuck so the adults in this case jared labelle 
who was 26. Uh, they, most of these are, all of these folks are residents of actually New York. So uh, he was a resident of Jamestown, as was uh, Betty Jean Clem, who was 16, and Anita uh, Hayfley, 22, who was uh, the mother of two children that came along. And the fourth adult was Douglas Tibbetts, uh, 18, of Greenhurst, New York. And Gerald LaBell actually left the area to go find some help. And a short time later, patrolman Ralph Clark and Robert Loeb Jr. drove up to the area on a routine check. Uh, Doug Tibbetts assured them uh, that everything was all right, and the officers just left them a short time later. I don't understand why you don't ask the officers for help there to get your car out, but, you know, that is what it is. Um, (laughs) LaBelle just kind of, I guess, had things under control. But, um, you know, they they took off after that, uh, and everyone just kind of packed up and waited for George, uh, Gerald Bell to return um, to the car. So Betty Jean and Douglas Tibbetts were looking up at the stars while they waited and noted a really bright star and observed it for nearly half an hour. In that time, it grew really bright, drawing closer to the car, ultimately descending onto a beach, uh, onto beach seven adjacent to the car. The object was as big as a house. Here we go again. Big as a house, mm-hmm. big as a room, big as a this. Um, but uh, it was mushroom-shaped, uh, kind of uh, shades of the, um, the, uh, the, there were a couple of incidents, but uh, the uh, Tuscumbia space penguins, the, the craft that they came in was kind of mushroom-shaped. Um, and it had a narrow base rising up to an oval structure. It was backlit by an intense bright white light. Uh, and there were various descriptions of the object given, but, uh, you know, this is the one that we're going to go with. Like, uh, t- there was some, it was kind of varied, kind of like a Frank Manor situation here. But uh, when the strange mu- mushroom settled on the ground, the witnesses in the car could feel a vibra- vibration move throughout the vehicle, shaking it somewhat. And they could hear a loud buzzing sound, too, like a telephone receiver makes. And a short time later, they could hear scratching sounds that sounded like it was coming from the roof, uh, as if someone was walking across it, as they put it. The object produced large light rays in every direction, making it difficult to look at. And it produced approximately 12 of them, and they seemed to be rotating toward the nearby woods. And Doug Tibbetts even claimed that it was as if the object was searching for something. But um, the uh, light rays is also a point of contention. Some said that it was only a few, uh, and some said that it was, uh, you know, just a single light ray. But um, they sat transfixed, and uh, it was now about a quarter after 10 and patrolman Loeb and Clark drove back to the area. And when they arrived, the lights of the craft went out almost immediately. Tibbetts decided to uh, approach the patrolman and together they all decided to walk out onto the beach to where the object had been. A few minutes later, Betty Jean cried out, don't look, there's something out there. (laughs) <laughs> what are you supposed and to do with that I, exactly I mean, like 
Do you expect me not to look? Because I'm going to look. You just told me something was out there. You don't want me to look at it? (laughs) Yeah. Um, What she saw was a tall, upright figure approaching the car. It stood just over six feet tall, and she could make out just uh, very few details. Um, But she decided to just slam on the horn. Uh, which caused this figure to move away and disappear into the darkness. It's just like pro- approaching the vehicle. It's like, fine, whatever. I'm out of here. <laughs> um, and when the when they began to blare the horn, the three men, they were about a, like 300 feet away, 100 yards or so, and they, they just couldn't find the object. It had disappeared uh, from where it landed. Uh, and they turned back, uh, prompted by the horn and at the car, Betty Jean just kind of jumped out screaming about the creature that had approached the vehicle. It just, it terrified her. And they all piled into the police cruiser and drove off. Um, dispatcher Wilson assumed the worst when this cruiser pulls up, they see, because like these kids are kind of like, just like passed out for, which is kind of, it's kind of hilarious. Like they're, they're holding these kids that look like they're lifeless, but uh, you know, uh, instead they had the story about a UFO and Betty Jean, she was just screaming. She refused to sit with her back to the windows. Um, And the, the press and project blue book were notified. Betty Jean, Doug Tibbetts asked for, um, and they asked for permission to return to that site the next night because they were, um, you know, ultimately fascinated by what had, um, transpired, but they they uh, left their car there, right? Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) They get their car back at least. I I assume so, but you know, I, it's a tough call. It's a tough call here, but, um, Around 7 a.m. the next morning, patrolman Paul H. Wilson and J. Robert Canfield visited the landing site and found two triangular indentations about 18 inches long that sloped downwards approximately 8 inches. Several feet away, they found three more sets of impressions, as well as a pair of, quote, skid marks. They also found three wet spots in the sand, the liquid of which stuck to the hands when touched. What's odd is that these spots remain for over 24 hours. When, you know, most liquids poured onto the sand, they, they evaporate generally pretty quickly. But, yeah, um, yeah uh, according to John Keel, one officer told him that he had collected the sample and had it analyzed. When it dried, he was able to bend the sand without breaking it. And whatever the substance was, it was apparently made of silicon. Interesting. Yes. Um, Major William S. Hall from Youngstown AFB was sent to the site at the behest of Project Blue Book. He took photos. He made some plaster casts of the markings and uh, quickly destroyed the markings after that because that's what you do when you're project blue book but um <laughs> well, they had a limited amount of space you know yeah yeah uh, um storage area was full of pie pans and <laughs> exactly like look we can't have a bunch of plaster casts just hanging around we've got 
the pie pans. And you know what? We need to t- photo ops every week with these damn things. We've got so many <laughs> of them. Think think of how the, the the budget was allocated for these. Yeah. Just Kids think about it. <laughs> Kids in the will have my ass if I put that plastic cast. Exactly. Exactly. You can't have it. The uh, Project Blue Book determined that bears or raccoons were the culprits for this, even though there are no bears in that area. And that, uh, and you know, the un- and they claim that the unusual sand was caused by urine. Okay. Okay. Um, sure. What? Whatever. PBB yeah, racco- raccoon is urine, out here. You know. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't know. This is uh, this is a fun one for me because this is one of one of many cases that uh, Ted Owens, the PK man who was in touch mm-hmm. with uh, space bugs, claimed to have prior knowledge of because he had talked to the space people about it. Um, as he had written to a CIA agent named George Clark, as you do as normal adjusted people do writing letters to the CIA about their uh, space contacts. <laughs> the SI <laughs> near this area and are about to make a move that will bring them to public notice again, just in case people are forgetting them. Something startling. They are getting restless because I am not getting anywhere with the U S government. How right I was Ted Owens writes. Of course I was. The SIs had told me to write that. And then they, he went, goes on to tell the story about, uh, Erie, Pennsylvania, the Presque Isle incident. Um, mm. <laughs> so he called it at the yep. end of So again, dear readers, the SIs had told me correctly they were going to do something startling. And they did. <laughs> the conveniently vague prediction, but. <laughs> wow. Wow. Um, yep. PK man out here calling it. As he sees it, as they tell him, <laughs> and, you know, alerting the guy at the CIA. Um, yeah, I can only imagine working for the CIA with like hopes and dreams of serving the country or something like that, and just having to field letters from uh, the a drunk Ted Owens making wild predictions. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gotta love it. Gotta love yep. Ted Owens, the PK man himself. Yeah. Uh, Great stuff. Three days, but that yeah, but that wasn't the that wasn't the end of the Harry Humanoid sightings, though. No, so, it was yeah. not. So three days later, on August third, a strange creature was seen walking the streets of Erie, Pennsylvania. Julie Helwig was awakened by the barking of neighborhood dogs. She looked out the window and described a human-shaped being that stood about five foot six inches tall, clothed in a yellow jacket and yellow trousers. This is where we get into the idea that um, as, you know, when it comes to like hairy humanoids, this kind of, you know, stands out. Uh, Quote, the head, she said, was huge and moon-shaped. And when uh, seen from the side, the back of its head appeared to be flat. Uh, End quote. The head of this being was covered. Yeah, this is just absolutely bonkers. Uh, The head of this being was covered in long, straggly hair. The being had big shoulders, but a slim build, which is not really indicative of your hairy humanoids. They're not slim. They're usually just really stocky. 
Um, the being walked in a stiff, jerky, mechanical way, holding their arms close to their sides. The legs did not bend at the knees. Quote, he moved like a mechanical wind-up toy, end quote. Uh, the frightened woman woke up her husband, who could only make out some kind of movement, but not much more because he didn't have his glasses on. Like, well, this seems like it seems like the setup to 12 Angry Men or something like that. But, uh, right. you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another woman saw a similar creature that same week in the same area while she was driving down Third Street. The woman stopped her car and the creature approached, pounding on the hood of her car before moving off. And, and what this like what these last two incidents remind me of is the case that we covered uh, for the year of the humanoids in which a woman in Ohio uh, had seen this uh, what she described as this like gorilla looking the creature that was surrounded by the shield of light. It kind of has similar vibes because it's just like hanging out like in the like downtown stuff, like not where you would picture a a creature like that hanging out. But um, um, yeah, I mean, it seems to me it's just like the euphonauts let let the Bigfoot off the uh, the the saucer just to like go take a leak or something. And they just like ditched him and they came back there. like ha ha (laughs) (laughs) i mean who among us hasn't had that happen to us though marooned Uh, on a planet with unfamiliar beings uh just because you had to go to the bathroom you know that's the human shared experience yeah (laughs) yeah yeah exactly (laughs) um that same night and again we're getting into the hall of fame names here Klebert Steff, a member of the Erie Times News Advertising Department, saw a UFO at around 11.45 p.m. through a pair of binoculars. The object moved erratically through the night sky, casting out red and white lights. An electrical engineer also saw an object with a V-shaped bottom through a pair of binoculars that week as well. And Klebert Steff saw the UFO and he said, what a scoop! exactly exactly um there were also sightings leading up to the july 31st event on beach six so two days earlier a six to eight foot long silver object was seen by one witness passing over erie at around 8 30 p.m on the same day Another witness found a series of three-toed footprints outside of Belvernon, Pennsylvania, 120 miles south, which is kind of indicative of your uh, Bigfoots. But it's also indicative of like the Honey Island Swamp Monster, which is not necessarily a Bigfoot, but kind of like a Bigfoot. It's, it's very it's a very weird um, creature. Um, and if uh, if you want to really good episode about the honey island swamp monster go listen to lyle blackburn's uh podcast uh monstro bizarro because he just released an episode on it and it is it's wild uh because it is not it, it's just very out there for what people encountered but uh yeah very yeah it's honey, a weird uh, one yeah it's a very weird it's an one. outlier for sure um mm-hmm. but 120 miles is pretty far away to be it's like connected bit, you know? it's a bit far away but uh if we got ufos maybe you know it isn't so right, far away true. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, on the 30th, uh, the Newcastle News photographed an angular object similar to the one reported the next day by Tibbetts and company. So UFOs in the area. And on the evening of August 17th, around Edinburgh Lake in Pennsylvania, 18 miles south of Erie, Seven witnesses reported meeting a giant creature in the park around the lake. And in Fontana, California, two women were startled by a seven-foot-tall creature uh, about a few weeks later that was completely covered in hair, which strolled up to their car. So um, it's a summer that has a lot of hairy humanoid activity coming going on, which... I don't think I'm interested a lot of people... in the the stroll. You said it strolled yeah. up to the car. Yeah. Okay. Yes, it it was a strolling right up to that car. But um, uh, I don't think this is necessarily, and I could be wrong. Like a time when Bigfoot is kind of really prevalent. Although you know, you've got the um, when does the um, Patterson Gimlin film? Come? I think is it was sixty seven. Sixty seven. Okay, so I don't know how prevalent the Bigfoot stuff is, but after that, it, it was kind of just starting to really pick up steam. You know, the Abominable mm-hmm. Snowman had been kind of in the popular consciousness already for a good 15, 20 years. Mm. So, yeah. Um, I, yeah, I don't know that the like Sasquatch or Bigfoot would have been commonly used words at the time. So instead, they're still saying things like it looks like a man except covered with hair, you know, Yeah, or kind of gorilla like. Um, yep. Some of those reports just remind me of like a monster. That's what it makes me think yeah. of. <laughs> yeah. Roman from the robot monster movie, <laughs> except without the helmet on, you know, so. Yep. Yeah. We're getting to the Mothman portion of this because the you can't really stretch. talk. Yeah. yeah, the home stretch. You can't <laughs> really talk about this stuff without talking about Mothman. Uh, and if you want more content like this, I will be putting out some uh, bonus content on the Patreon that covers some of the stuff that I didn't get to talk about because there was like a, a really great um write up about some stuff that was going on in indiana and in some other places but um there are a few prelude events before you get into the main mothman stuff and you know keel kind of points them out but there's uh um they're interesting so um the summer in point pleasant there were a couple of ufo sightings one that was reported by Mary Heyer, you know, a journalist for the Athens Messenger, who had become very prominent in um, the uh, Mothman saga. She um, she chronicled everything in the, in, in the Athens Messenger. But that summer, she had reported a round object on the Ohio side of the river. And another witness had reported an object over Tiny's restaurant just outside of Point Pleasant. And like... Um, Tiny's was kind of the site of a couple of different sightings of different things. But on the same evening of the Wanake Reservoir sighting of October 11th, two boys in Elizabeth, New Jersey, 40 miles south, had an encounter with a strange man near the New Jersey Turnpike. Uh, James Yankitis and Martin Mouse Munov were walking home along the Turnpike when they reached a corner. And behind the tall, a tall wire fence that kept you know pedestrians from climbing up 
uh, to the turnpike was a man. He was rather tall, somewhere over six feet, dressed in a, quote, sparkling green coverall that shimmered and reflected the street lights. A black belt completed the ensemble. And he had a, a, a dark complexion and, quote, little round eyes, really beady, set far apart, end quote. Uh, they couldn't remember anything else about this man's face except for this big grin that he had on it. Uh, the boys didn't stick around. That's reassuring. Yeah, always reassuring. Uh, the boys didn't stick around um, as there had been reports of uh, assaults in the area. And later it was reported that a tall green man had chased a middle-aged resident down the same street. So uh, we've got kind of a grinning man sighting here, which would be associated with uh, injured cold. Um. On October 30th in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, two couples driving on Route 38 saw a carrot-shaped object 400 feet long hovering 50 feet over the roof of an industrial plant 400 feet away. It was in a horizontal position and had huge riding lights and windows. A ramp went down to the plant roof and they could see figures moving about. They watched for 10 minutes before leaving. A truck driver also saw the same object and ran uh, his truck into a telephone pole. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can't say, yeah. I, uh, you know, I can't say I blame him, but no. space carrots, you don't see that every day. <laughs> no. Uh, in another odd event that October in Cincinnati, Ohio, quote, at 8.20 p.m., Mrs. Everett Stewart was talking on the telephone when she smelled a foul odor in the room. She went to her bedroom where she had a feeling of being watched. Looking out the window, she saw an oval-shaped object with portholes and red, green, and white lights revolving around it. It was about 75 feet in diameter and 100 feet up. She woke her husband, who also saw it, and called her married daughter, Miss uh, Jane Emery, a mile away, the Emery's also saw it, and a neighbor with binoculars could see it. Uh, see that it had square windows glowing yellow. Janet went outdoors and saw the UFO eject a red ball, which maneuvered while the first UFO took off southward. The red ball flew 75 to 100 feet over J.E.'s head. It was oval, and its underside was shiny like aluminum foil. It was bigger than uh, my cottage and yard combined. She also smelled the garbage-like odor. I guess the UFO farted on them with uh, less detrimental effects. Yep. But yep. Also bigger Nothing. than a house, or bigger than a cottage. So is that a house-sized UFO again? Yeah. But like We have really weird standards of measurement when it comes to UFOs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mrs. Uh, steward went to bed the odor still in the house after some time the room was filled uh, for an instant with bright white light then this vanished and a globe of light about 21 inches in diameter appeared at the foot of her bed inside the globe were five non-human hairless heads with oval sunken in eyes instead of noses there were slits and they had no mouths Mrs. S. screamed and the globe disappeared. She was so disquieted by the experience, she was under psychiatric care for the next two years, end quote. Um, yeah, no thank you. Um, That's pretty intense. 
Yeah. Uh, I've had orbs at the foot of my bed before, but, uh, you know, that sounds scary. (laughs) Especially after what she's went through, you know? Yep. In late October at around 4 a.m. in Duncan Falls, Idaho, Leonard Elmore, 72, suffered from insomnia and on this morning was out walking when he saw an L-shaped building like a galvanized iron shed in a field where he knew there had been no building before. He went closer to take a better look and felt something that frightened him. He turned to hurry away and distinctly heard a normal male voice come from it saying, don't run, don't run. Um, Is this the intergalactic high school principal telling you not to run in the hallways. I have to, I have to wonder. Um, he went directly home to get his rifle and upon returning to the site discovered that the building had disappeared. And I think what's interesting is that it kind of reminds me of that story that Johnny Tenney had, um, where the disappearing diner. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Something like that, but like the building disappearing, um i love stories where buildings disappear it's just like a really i mean that's pretty mind-bending to like go to a place and then come back and it's not there anymore Um, yeah it's very weird there's a story like that on on the liminal earth map it was one of the like a fairly early submission where like Mm -hmm. somebody went to a gas station and they bought this particular kind of root beer that they couldn't get at home and they were really excited about it and um they drove drove through and then on the way back they were like ah i want to get some more of the root beer to take home i shouldn't have bought just one bottle and like the gas station didn't exist nobody had ever heard of it yeah yeah <laughs> this is bizarre that's... like that's mind bending like twilight zone stuff you know very weird very weird so reports of a winged man went back to september 1st 1966 Mrs. James Eckhart of Scott, Mississippi, phoned the local paper, the Delta Democrat Times, to report a man-shaped object fluttering around the sky. Several others had seen the being, including meteorologist John Hirsch, who who dismissed it as a weather balloon. Flying man, weather balloon, totally the same. Totally the same. Yeah. Yeah. November 1st is kind of the first sighting of what people believe is mothman and it occurred near um an armory uh guard station at camp on camp Connolly road one of the guardsmen noticed a strange humanoid figure perched on a tree limb it was brown in color and just seemed to be very very big but the next night at the intersection of Interstate 77 and Route 47 near Parkersburg, West Virginia, Woodrow Durenberger was driving from Marietta, Ohio in a red panel truck to Mineral Wells, West Virginia. Uh, Woody had taken up a new job as a sewing machine salesman. Uh, he was normally a factory worker, but uh, the factory that he'd been working on uh, had been on strike for a number of weeks, so he took this job to uh, make some money for his family. And um, at 7.25, a large vehicle appeared in his rearview mirror, and he noticed it because uh, he heard this like loud bang coming from uh, 
the back and he noticed that one of the showing sewing machines had fallen over. Um, soon after this, the vehicle behind him pulled past him only. It wasn't a vehicle. It was a dark gray oblong object that resembled a glass globe on a lantern. And the craft, it pulled out in front of him and it basically cut him off in the middle of the road. It hovered just eight inches above it and was approximately 35 feet long. And from a door that had a squeaky hinge emerged a rather ordinary man. He walked up to the right side of Woody's truck. He looked to be in his mid-30s with a dark complexion and dark brown hair that was uh, combed backwards. He wore an overcoat that was dark blue and he had navy blue pants and he stood with his arms crossed uh, with his hands underneath his armpits and he was smiling politely. A, a strange voice in Woody's head told him to roll down the window. It was a rainy night but the man stood there outside of Woody's panel van, asking him question after question, telling Woody not to be frightened. He identified himself as cold, and he called himself a searcher. He explained to Woody that cities like nearby Parkersburg were called gatherings where he came from. The conversation from Cold was entirely telepathic, though he told Woody that he could either think the answer or speak it. Either way, he would understand him. After conversing for 10 minutes, Cold departed, telepathically uttering the phrase, we will see you again, before the door on the craft opened again, and with a similar squeaky hinge, Cold entered. According to Woody, an arm that was already inside the craft pulled the door closed, and then the charcoal globe took off. What's interesting here is that two nights later, Woody was driving with a friend, and he claimed to have a telepathic conversation in the vehicle in which he kind of gathered more information about cold and, you know, uh, that he came from a place called Landilos. Which, um, uh, what you're going to find out later is a place where it's pretty normal, but, uh, one distinct feature of Landulos is that there's a lot of car accidents in Landulos. Don't really know why, <laughs> but, uh, it is, uh, it, it's one of the things, but, um, probably cause they got those janky vehicles that they're driving around <laughs> and with squeaky hinges and <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, you know why they have so many accidents? It's all the telepathic conversation while driving. Oh it's my like god! Really, <laughs> it's as it's, bad as texting and driving. You know, it is at, at least as bad. You know, don't don't do a telepathy and drive, folks. That's the lesson here. Don't do it. Right. Don't be reading my mind while I'm driving. <laughs> don't do it. Don't do it. You don't know. You look. Look. You don't know what's going on up in this head and you don't want to know. But if you're going to like, if you're going to slide your telepathic mind into mine, you're right. going to end up, there's a car accident brewing in your life. It's just going to happen. Um, be like, like Lanulose all over the place, you know, Lanulose so. all over the place. Um, November 2nd was a busy night for the injured cold types. 
In April of 1967, a a woman given the pseudonym Miss Bryant met with John Keel and claimed that on November 2nd, she had just gone outside getting ready to head home for the night sometime between 7 and 8 p.m., where she witnessed a flash of light above her. This flash seemed to render her to the spot, Uh, but she was able to look up, even though she was pretty much paralyzed. And when she... what she saw was a uh, long cylindrical object. The object landed in the nearby parking lot, barely 20 feet away. Two men exited the object and walked over to her. They had dark complexions and pointed features, wearing coveralls. They started to talk to her, asking her rudimentary questions in a sing-songy, high-pitched voice. There nope, was one question. Like no, not at all. <laughs> uh... There was one question they repeated multiple times. What is your time? Okay. Yeah. And shortly after, they returned to their craft and departed. And then she was able to move again. Well, Mrs. Bryant also claimed to see these beings walking down the streets of Gallipolis in normal clothing after this encounter. They even nodded to her as they passed by. These beings were also interested in the cattle on her property because she lived on a farm and caught them in the act of mutilating her livestock like multiple times. Um, okay, you know, you catch them doing it once. Uh, the, yeah. That's bad enough. But <laughs> I think the, the, the thing is, is she's like, they didn't even go for the choice cuts on it. And I'm like, okay, uh, we're talking about, if you want to talk about it like that, we could totally talk about it like that. But um she also experienced just like kind of strange apparitions in her house that resembled these figures that was she was seeing. Like they would walk into her house and then out uh, of her house. And like when they exited her house, uh, where they exited actually uh, led to a 10 foot drop. So it didn't really make sense for them to do that. But, uh, you know, that's. Uh, but also, guess, why did she have doors like that? Exactly. Why do you have that 10-foot drop? There's no stairs there. Do you live in the Winchester Mystery House or something? What's happening? (laughs) (laughs) This is the Winchester Mystery House of West Virginia. Um, Or Police, anyway. Yeah. yeah. Uh, In early November, an elderly man walked into the office of Mary Heyer to report his encounter with a strange figure also similar to Injured Cold. This man and his co-worker were driving home to Point Pleasant when an elongated object stopped their car on the Interstate 77 near Parkersburg. A man emerged from the craft wearing a black coat, keeping his arms folded under uh, with his hands under his armpits. He rolled down the window, asking again, asking like the most rudimentary questions, you know, where are you from? Where are you going? All this stuff. It sounds like, you know, you're being interrogated by your mother. Uh, After receiving answers, the man returned to his craft and it listed off. This man refused to have his name printed, but added that he received a visit from a scientist who told him that "Eh, maybe you should forget what just happened. You know, just forget that it even happened. Um, and this would become a very common occurrence in Point Pleasant to the witnesses that would experience, uh, you know, the Mothman, UFOs, and all that kind of stuff. Um, 
On November 5th, near Arlington, Indiana, uh, Miss Kathleen S., named Confidential, glanced out the kitchen door and saw a lighted object which moved toward her and hovered 50 feet away, 20 to 30 feet up. It was as big as a house and shaped like a ball with a ring around it, Saturn-shaped. In the middle were brightly, uh, were brightly white lit windows. Mrs. S. could see in these windows one man and two women who appeared to be on different floors. Behind them were instrument panels. The man, muscular in build, was staring directly at her, which frightened her. He was manipulating something like a steering wheel. Okay, this is just creepy, okay? You're manipulating <laughs> a steering wheel, and you're just, like, staring out right at her, like, come well, on. We, ho- we hope it's a steering wheel anyway. <laughs> yes, we, oh, God, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> Uh, intergalactic peepers here. This is terrible. This is terrible. Um, the woman. It was a thing in the sixties, you know. Uh, yeah. No, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, the woman who was on the lower level handed him an object, a small object, like a cup of coffee. After about three minutes, the object began moving westward, then rose steeply, emitting a multicolored exhaust at a great uh. At a speed greater than a jet. During the daytime of November 12th in Clenenden, West Virginia, Kenneth Duncan and four other men were digging a grave for his father-in-law, Homer Smith, in Reamer Hills Cemetery. When Duncan claimed to see a, quote, man-like figure that emerged from some nearby trees and flew over the heads of the grave diggers. Kenneth was the only one that saw this creature, but he claimed that it was in view for about a minute. And now things are going to get, yeah, creepy. Um, right. Cause I think the gravedigger one to me, like that sounds like that could have been a sandhill crane. Like, like, you know how there was the explanation that Moth, Mothman was just a crane. Like, yeah. I feel like with that story, it's like only one of the guys saw it and you know, uh, you could see he saw it for about a minute. It sounds like it was. Uh, it, why? It's weird to me that they were digging a grave for somebody they do. Uh, right. <laughs> I don't know if it's like cheaper. Do you get a discount funeral if you dig the grave yourself? <laughs> right. Discount funerals. The uh, discount yeah. plot. <laughs> we'll do the digging. <laughs> we'll do the but, digging. Don't worry about but that, it. That's but, that's like one of the Mothman reports that I think like okay, well, it could have been a crane or something like more prosaic, you know? Cause right. There's not much to it, you know. No, there isn't. Um, but there is something to this encounter on the night of November fourteenth. Merle Partridge was watching TV in his Salem, West Virginia home at approximately 10.30 p.m. when his TV went out. The black screen was replaced with a herringbone pattern and at a, and a high-pitched sound that seemed to be increasing, like the sound a generator, generator would make as it was winding up. Bandit, the family's German shepherd, was howling on the porch, barking in the direction of the hay barn. Merle could see that something had Bandit riled up. He walked out to the porch and saw a pair of red circular lights that were glowing intermittently and rotating in the air. Merle aimed his flashlight at them, and they in turn reflected the light back at him. 
And that was when Bandit ran towards them. Now, I think it's important to note here that the papers were the ones that called these eyes, but he was very adamant that these were not eyes. These were just like lights in his uh, on his property that were like just rotating. They were they didn't look like eyes at all. But um, Merle was terrified, and he went back inside his house, and he didn't come out till the next morning. Uh, Bandit never returned and at the location where the red lights had been he could see Bandit's tracks going round and round in circles but they didn't lead anywhere and to hear the like um, because uh, you, you can you get it either with reading the Mothman prophecies or the, like the trusted parts of Grey Barker's The Silver Bridge because like a portion of it is like uh, there's an easy way to tell when gray barker is basically making it up it's because there's always someone having sex in like the story like every time that gray barker <laughs> makes it up somebody's banging somebody somebody's hearing about somebody banging somebody like it, it's right. literally yeah. like sexualized to a certain point but uh uh in the silver bridge he has the account of him interviewing Merle Partridge and how torn up they were about Bandit. Uh, but like as a guy who had, you know, he'd been an avid hunter all his life. Uh, he was kind of used to uh, certain predators on his property. This was something different for him. He didn't want to go outside. He was terrified. He, it was just, it made him incredibly uneasy. Uh, but he slept that night with the gun right by his bed. Yeah. And about a week after the sighting, Merle received a knock on the door from a man asking for help. He had driven his car in a ditch while he was uh, looking for his son. The man claimed that he had seen a large, fast moving object with flashing lights, which caused him to crash his car into a ditch. And Merle successfully pulled his car back out onto the road. Uh, this guy was uh, trying to find his son. He, right. his son went missing and um, after pulling the car back onto the road, they found his son walking down the road from Merle's house. He had no memory of how he got there, um, but it, it's just kind of one of those weird um, off kind of um, uh, like it was uh, the, that portion is from an interview that Jeff Wamsley did with him years later. But um, uh, in the summer of 67, I think, or maybe it was 66. I can't remember exactly, but yeah, no, it was 67. He also claimed to see an object hover over his house that kind of just like blacked out the sky before it like took off. So um, Merle experienced quite a few things. Um the the bird man as we get to the uh the the mothman here uh a good portion of the sightings were reported in the TNT area which was it used to be like a munitions area and storage facility for the government for many years it was part of the McClintock wildlife preserve they kind of just took it over they built these thing these storage facilities in in the hills and um, eventually when the war was over, they, these, uh, storage facilities, which they called igloos were 
kind of uh, leased and sold to other um, companies that could store whatever they wanted there. And they store munitions in some of them. But um, but it's a good place to go parking if you're a teenager. You know, yeah. in 1966, you got nothing better to do than go down the TNT area. You know, yep. so, yep. It's it's the hangout spot. It's the it's the place. Uh, you know, if you wanna, you know, just uh, have a good time. But um, uh, the first it was the Netflix and chill of its day. You know? It was. Um, so there were November fifteenth. Uh, two newly married young couples, Roger and Linda Scarberry, and Steve and Mary Millette. We're cruising through the TNT area, you know, just looking to hang out with some folks because it was a hangout spot. Um, but the roads were kind of empty that night. They didn't see anybody else out there. Um, before long, near the abandoned North Power Plant, um, they saw a pair of red eyes and a gray humanoid figure that was tall with black wings folded back. They quickly burned rubber to Route 62, but they saw the creature on a hill by a large billboard they watched the creature spreaded their wings and took off straight up and they weren't exactly sure if it was the same creature that they had seen or a different one um but this creature flew over their car keeping up with the black 57 chevy as it sped into town at 100 miles per hour um they pulled away from the creature at the edge of town uh, where it disappeared into a nearby field. And I also believe uh, it was on this trip that they saw a dead dog on the side of the road. Um, yeah. Which yeah. a lot of people, you know, I figure that's probably bandit. Right. And, uh, and it was probably Mothman killed bandit, you know? Yep. Um, so the couple, they had stopped at the, uh, the, local dairy land to discuss what their next move would be. Uh, and they decided to head back out there. And when they did, they noticed that the dog was gone. Um, but before long, the Mothman would emerge again and jump over their car. And they once again sped back into town, just absolutely terrified. They didn't want anything to do with this. So they actually stopped at tiny's diner and phone the police. So it, Deputy Millard Halstead accompanied them back to the TNT area, but they found no signs that the creature had been there. There, there were some like um, uh, reports uh, that claimed that they had seen like red eyes out there and shadow moving about, which I don't think is part of the main story but the there's at one point uh allegedly over halstead's radio there was a sound like a, a high-pitched sound like a record uh being sped up that uh eventually came through which kind of freaked them all out so yeah, yeah don't blame them um it's like what i next, was talking about earlier and it's like yeah. it's like a heightened a heightened weird sense of reality anyway and then something like that happens that's kind of enough to to, to push you over the yeah. edge yeah uh, just a bit so next day sheriff george J johnson calls a press conference about the sighting and from there the publicity spreads and then we get the name of this creature the mothman Da da da. right um 
I had read yeah. before that they had thought about calling it the Batman, but since like the Adam West series was popular on TV at the time, mm-hmm. the, the, the like Batman's taken. You can't really say that because people will think Adam West and then not take it seriously. So they came up with Mothman. Yep. And, yeah. Um, the next night, the 16th, around 9 p.m., Mr. and Mrs. Raymond Wamsley and Mrs. Marcella Bennett, they were driving to the house of uh, Ralph Thomas, and they said they saw this uh, big red light maneuvering over the Team T area. Um, they didn't really think anything of it. But uh, when they arrived, uh, they found that uh, the Thomases were not home. Uh, so as they were leaving, they stay, they said that a big gray thing, bigger than a man with glowing red eyes rose up from the ground. Now, the way that they described this, uh, and the way that they said it was like, oh, it was like this thing was laying down, but it seems more like this thing was just like appearing out of the ground itself, which is weird. Um, yeah because like something that big you're gonna kind of you figure you're gonna kind of notice it but like it just appears from out of nowhere stands up they go into the house uh lock the doors and at one point they hear footsteps on the porch and they look and they can see this creature looking in the window um they phone the police but by the time the police got there the the creature was gone on the morning of the 17th mrs roy gross of cheshire ohio was awakened by the barking of her dog and went to see what the commotion was about and through the kitchen window she saw a bright circular object near route seven the size of a small house again this is a unit of measurement that keeps coming up and with what looked like sections or compartments of blue and red windows. Uh, and this object appeared over a field uh, about housetop level and then zigzagged away. And later that day, a teenager saw a gray man-shaped creature with red eyes and a 10-foot wingspan pursue him in Cheshire, Ohio, not far from her house. Um, around... Uh, on the same day, two policemen in Gaffney, South Carolina, C. Hutchins and A.G. Husky, were driving in an outlying section of Gaffney when they saw a dull gold-colored object descending directly in front of them. It was spherical with a wide, flat rim around it and had no portholes or windows. It basically looks like, uh, when you look at the sketch of the thing, it looks like Saturn, basically. Uh, and. And when it was within a few feet of the ground, a door in its underside opened and a ladder dropped down. White light came from the interior. A small man, perhaps four feet tall, dressed in metallic gold suit without buttons or zippers, descended and walked to within 15 to 20 feet of the officers. He wore no helmet. He then spoke to the policeman in careful, precise English, and a conversation ensued lasting two to three minutes. He did not disclose where he was from, but said he would return in two days. Then he returned to his craft, and it rose with a soft whir. Small footprints were found at the site. There was no return visit, though. They did claim to see lights in the sky uh, a couple nights ago. Liars. Liars. 
total liars. Um, that is uh, such a weird UFO shape, though. The Saturn shape. It's like, mm-hmm. weren't there some like that in the France flap in the 50s? Am I, am I, I thinking think of so, the wrong yeah. thing? Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it's not one you hear very often. No. No, yeah. it isn't. Um, and then the next night, the evening of the 18th, two firefighters, Paul Yoder and Benjamin Enox, were in the TNT area when they spotted a huge bird-like creature with large red eyes. They were adamant that it was the biggest bird they had ever seen. And even years later, they proclaimed that it wasn't a man, but a bird, like a really big bird. Um, and the, the sightings of the... The winged weirdy. As yes. <laughs> that was the old term, the winged weirdies. Yep. Yeah. Um, November 20th, there would be a number of sightings uh, reported in Ferry Branch, Dixie, and Campbell's Creek. Uh, the 25th, Tom Uri of Point Pleasant was driving north along Route 62 on his way to work when he saw something very large flying over the trees along the Ohio River. Uh, This thing, which he described as a gigantic bird with a wingspan of 10 to 12 feet, was circling his car and keeping up with it pretty easily, even as he pushed it to 75 miles per hour. The bird swooped down at the car four times before disappearing into the trees, and like Yoder and Enox, he was adamant it was not a man, it was a giant bird. Um... On the night of the 24th, Mary Heyer would catch a glimpse of the red eyes when she visited the abandoned power plant uh, in the TNT area. Um, And there are a bunch of other sightings here, and I I wrote a bunch of them down. I'm going to include some of them in the uh, Patreon bonus episode, but there's, uh, there's a couple of that are worthy of noting here. Um, one is the Connie Carpenter sighting, which is one of the few that was reported during the day. Um, she saw the creature at 10:30 AM on November 27th. Um, she saw this uh, tall gray figure standing on a golf course uh, and it unfolded 10 foot wings and flew directly at her windshield. And she saw like those red eyes, like basically head on and it veered off and disappeared. But her eyes, uh, she ended up uh, developing conjunctivitis and um, basically had red eyes and itchy eyes for about two weeks afterwards. But one of the defining uh, incidents uh, occurred on December 7th. John Keel had finally made his way to West Virginia. He'd been brought there um, after hearing the reports of the Scarberries and Mallets. Uh, and after meeting a small group of people, which included Deputy Miller Halstead, Mary Heyer, Connie Carpenter, the Scarberries and Mallets, they all drove out to the TNT area to see if they could see the Mothman. And after entering one of the igloos, Connie claimed inside this igloo that she could see the eyes of the mothman as uh from behind her back as they were exiting uh no one else in there could but uh as they were coming out um and 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 connie was just absolutely terrified mary Millette found that uh her ear was bleeding which heel uh chalked up to like a change in the air pressure uh in the area 
Yeah. Um, they also they also claim that they heard a large like metallic bang while they were outside, and they also uh, saw someone running through the field. But um, wasn't it one of the t- one of the two of them started having like crazy dreams and nightmares too, and like yeah, poltergeist activity at their house and uh, um, yeah, and uh, in the next year. Connie Carpenter was almost abducted by a man in black. Um, oh, right. Yeah. That's a crazy story. Yeah. Yeah. But um, interestingly enough, after they returned to town, Keel decided to head back out into the area. And what he found was uh, what he called a zone of fear. So uh, he would walk out to a certain portion of the area and he would just feel this intense fear. And when he did, like, he could walk back out of it and be perfectly fine. But he kept walking into the zone, trying to get, like, kind of an idea of it. Uh, The next day, he went out there, but couldn't find any source for it. But um, that right there, folks, is going to do it for the 1966 portion of this series. Um, uh, When we get uh, into... 67 we're getting into you know more ohio valley stuff uh we're getting into people hitting ufos with their cars their cars being hijacked by aliens we're getting into uh just a lot of other crazy stuff but uh ap thank you for uh coming on for this episode man this is a long one (laughs) yeah this was (laughs) you know i was in it for the long haul sitting here you know 1966 what a year man what a year we covered a lot of ground so we did these couple of years of ufology are a big big interest of yours so it's great that you're digging into it yeah, and we'll and we'll see what comes comes of it after we're done. But um, uh, <laughs> but I hope uh, stuck yeah. with us for the whole thing, you know, because yes. there's a lot of good stuff in there. So yes, yeah. um, uh, so uh, where can people follow you on Twitter and like uh, if they want to get in contact with you if they are an Elvira alien, uh, where yeah. can they do that? <laughs> it, if you are or know any space Elvira's, please hit me up on Twitter and feel free to slide into my DMs at a prodigiosis or just search it AP Strange. You'll find me on there. And yep. uh, the blog the blog site is apstrange.com. Uh it's pretty straightforward, simple stuff. So uh but thanks for having me on, man. Uh, no, I appreciate back it. Back for a third time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's crazy. <laughs> three times. He's a three Peter, yeah. folks. Uh, I'm gonna keep it short this evening though, but uh if you wanna if you want to follow along with anything, uh, you know, check out anything. Uh check the uh show notes for the link tree. You'll find everything, you'll find show uh sources for these episodes. Um special thank you to Floats for the use of their song UFOs, the theme for this podcast. Special thanks to Spencer Worth Davis for editing. Uh special thanks to Megan Lagerberg for our logo and uh the great Desdemona for our t-shirt designs. And finally, don't forget to look up because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies or in your swampy backyard in Michigan. In gray, we trust.